Welcome to a very special episode of Dads from the Crypt. Normally, we're a Tales from the Crypt podcast, but today, the dads are heading to Elm Street, and we will be talking to Wayne Bryan about his latest book, Welcome to Elm Street. And then Wayne, Mondo, Jody, and I will be ranking and discussing each of the Nightmare movies. With all that said, welcome to the Crypt, Wayne. Thanks for having me, guys. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for coming. All right. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and about your book. Well, I'm a, a writer from Ireland, film historian. Um, this Nightmare on Elm Street book is going to be my fourth book on release. I'm in the middle of working on my fifth and sixth books, but um, I'm just anticipating the release of this Elm Street book, which is really exciting for me because I've been an Elm Street fan since I was about five years old. It was, you know, my introduction to horror and when I, when I came around to being able to, when I came around to what I wanted to write about next, you know, Elm Street was always in the back of my mind and I got the opportunity to do that last year. So I started contacting a few people who were involved in the series. You know, I, I built up some contacts from previous books and so I had a way in to speak to some people and, you know, I built up a good list of interviewees and we, we were able to put a, a good, interesting book together. And the, the thing I'm excited about for, you know, Elm Street has been written about quite a lot over the years in different books and has, you know, a lot of documentaries out there on it. But I got a lot of people who haven't gone to record before. And so there's going to be some stories in there that, you know, you can't find in previous books or documentaries. So I'm, I'm really excited about that. That's awesome. Can awesome. you elaborate on who some of those people are that haven't talked before? Yeah, well, we got people like um, Lisa Gottlieb, uh, Bobby Lesser, um, Roy Wagner. I know he's appeared in some stuff. Um, who else have I got? Stephen Fireberg, the cinematographer from Elm Street 4. Um, God, who else have we got? I will blank on these things. But um, it's a lot of, you know, cinematographers, writers, directors. I don't have too many of the actors in there because um, I wanted to really dig into some of those people who haven't really spoken about it a lot. Jack Haken, you know, the cinematographer from 1 and 2. Andre Ellingson, who was a special effects guy. Mick Strawn. Mick Strawn actually did my forward as well. You know, so Mick, Mick did a great book actually on part four, which... You know, I think it's one of the best books ever written about the making of a movie because he really digs in deep into that movie. And that's, I think, one of the best films in the series. But um, yeah, so good few people involved. And I'm just, I'm delighted. We, and we got Robert England, of course. Awesome. You know, who yeah. has <laughs> course. spoken a lot about the series in the past. And the great thing about uh, Robert is he's a dream for an interviewer or for anybody, you know, making a documentary or writing a book because Robert loves to talk. You know, I think we spoke for an extra hour just on everything and anything in the world, you know, in movies, old Hollywood stories. But my approach to this was very much uh, from a thematic perspective in digging into the, the kind of subtext and the themes that are going on in the in the films. And Robert was completely on that level with me. You know, he, he that's the, the way he approaches the series as well, which is all of these deep themes that Wes Craven kind of planted in there early on. So he was great. You know, I mean, sometimes when you're when you're talking to certain people from the, the series, they might not necessarily come from that angle. You know what I mean? For, for some people, it's a job and it's a they, they bring great artistry and craft to it, but they're not necessarily thinking about those teams and context. But Robert is 
all about that. So, you know, we talked in depth about all, all the movies. So it was just a, it was a fun experience and I'm just super excited that it's, it's coming out now in the next few weeks. That's what, I, yeah, so I, I love exactly? that you got, oh, sorry. I love that you got some of the uh, lesser like known people because I think sometimes they have the best stories because they're the stories that the actors aren't telling the stories that like, the directors aren't, aren't telling. They're telling those really kind of nitty, the nitty gritty details. And, um, one thing about Robert England, and you, you probably know this, I love hearing him in interviews because he seems genuinely in love with the genre, genuinely in love with the character. Mm-hmm. Like he's not faking it. He seems like a, just a guy that just loves the work he's done. And it's, it's pretty awesome. Yeah. And he's kind of accepted the fact that this, he is the logo of this franchise, that it's, this is his legacy right here. You know, he's, yeah. um, he, is, he is the Boris Karloff or the Bela Lugosi of our generation. And Definitely. he's accepted it. And he's, that's awesome. He's just a, a great cheerleader for the series. So if, if you ever get a chance to speak to him, He's he's just a, an interviewer's dream. Hey, Jason, can you, get, can you get on that? <laughs> yeah, you can, Wayne, Wayne, you can look us up. Actually, uh, John Kassir, uh is very much the same, where he just went off. You know, we barely had to ask anything. He just kept on going and going and going, giving us so much great stuff. What we need is a John Kassir and Robert England buddy movie. Like buddy oh, cop, buddy horror host. <laughs> um, that would be... Uh, all I can imagine is like Lethal Weapon, but with Freddie in the driver's seat and the crib keeper just sitting there in the, in the passenger seat with a cup of coffee. <laughs> I'd pay for that. There'd be, there'd be no horror. It'd be just those two guys talking. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. That'd be amazing. Um, so, Wayne, when does the book actually come out? Um, it's due out within the next, I'd say, four to six weeks. You know, the thing is with, with everything going on, there's no firm street date. All we have is kind of a time frame of when it's going to be out. So it's going to be sometime late December to mid-January, I'd say. So okay. I'll probably and find out today. It's out. <laughs> can we find it on Amazon, uh, pre-ordered on Amazon or Barnes & Noble? Absolutely. Or- it's, it's available through all, all booksellers, major bookstores, indie booksellers, and, of course, Amazon and, and direct from the website as well. So, um, yeah, it's going to be a, a decent release, and um, I'm super excited for it. We got some great photographs from, from everybody involved as well. We, we, on all my books, what I do is I always ask people to kind of dig into their archives and if they can share anything from their kind of their personal archives that, you know, that's, that's not easily found on, on Google or anything like that, because I think it, all, it lends a little special quality to, to the book if you're going to see some stuff in there that you can't find anywhere else. So I, I got some really cool stuff. Awesome. We'll make sure to toss a link in the uh, episode description to, uh, to your webpage to make sure that people can order it. Oh, thanks. Absolutely. Yeah, and you sent me the forward and a couple chapters to uh, read, and I read them, and it's fabulous. It's really, oh. yeah, again, I've seen all the documentaries and the special features, and this is definitely the nitty-gritty stuff that you we haven't heard before. So that's, oh, that's really something special you got there. Cheers. Um, appreciate that. Um, a couple of the chapters I, I sent you was representative of my favorite films as well freddy's dead was one of them you know and i really, really loved digging into that because i think it's a super underrated horror film and underrated elm street film i think it's just uh it's a fun time yeah. mm-hmm. um now you said this is your fifth book fourth or fifth fourth with the fifth fourth. and sixth on the way so what were your previous three books so my first book was the cinema of tom DeChillo, including me out um tom DeChillo is one of my favorite directors of all time i think he's you know, he, he's a legend kind of within the independent film world. He kind of came out of the, the New York no wave scene, you know, Jim Jarmusch and Amos Poe and Eric Mitchell and all that um, early films with Steve Buscemi and stuff. And he his I guess his most famous film would be Living in Oblivion with Steve Buscemi, mm. which was kind of a, a kind of a satirical making of an indie movie, you know, which kind of hit close to the bone for, you know, a lot of indie filmmakers and a lot it's 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 beloved within the film industry because it kind of it's it's dead on in its satire. But um, he did Johnny Swade with Brad Pitt. That was his first movie with um, Sam Jackson, Catherine Keener. 
Um, it, he's one of those guys who it, each of his films is just a, a, I don't know how he hasn't become this a, a, a bigger figure in mainstream cinema. I know by the time he got to The Real Blonde with um, Daryl Hannah and Maxwell Caulfield and Matthew Modine, he was working with Paramount. But, you know, as what happens with a lot of um, indie filmmakers, they don't marry well with major studios and the film didn't do well. And he kind of, he kind of went back to more indie movies, you know, more kind of classically indie movies, if you will, after that. But um, he, he's just a filmmaker who fascinated me. And he was the one who kind of got me into cinema as, a, as an art form. You know, I, I saw Johnny Swade when I was about 11 or 12 and it blew my mind. I was kind of like, what the hell is this? You know, it, was, it wasn't Elm Street. It wasn't Steven Seagal movies. It was just completely different. It was another world. It was, it was art cinema and indie movies, but still accessible in, in some kind of a way for, for a young film fan like me. And so that really got me into cinema. And I always intended, I, like, I wasn't great in school. So I wasn't, you know, someone who had a pathway to working in, in film or literature or anything like that. And, you know, after being turned down for years by college after college, I just wanted to do something in, in that realm. And I decided one day after one rejection letter too many from college that, you know, screw it, I'm just going to write this book anyway. You know, I, I wanted to honor Tom DeCillo and... I managed to reach out to him at some stage and asked him if I could interview him. And he was very gracious. And I actually went over to New York and I spent a week with him. And we, we talked about each film one by one. We dug in deep. And then he introduced me to all his actors. And Steve Buscemi actually wrote my forward in the end. But I did this without a publishing deal or anything like that or without anything else. So I just kept going. And for five years, I plugged away at this thing, interviewing people over time. And eventually I finished it got it in some kind of shape of a book because I didn't know how to write books or anything like that. I just did it. And I, I had a publisher in mind because I was a big fan of Columbia University's Director's Cut series, which digs in deep, you know, into some great filmmakers' work. And they were one of the first people I approached. They loved the book and they didn't want to touch a word of it. And so they signed me and I was blown away by that. So that kind of opened doors to publishers you know once you have that first book out there it's, it's a good thing to have on your your cv or whatever and so i went from there to burt reynolds who was I, I said well i've done my my favorite director let's do my favorite actor you know and burt reynolds to me was just again someone who was there through my childhood huge career massive amount of films and a lot of them very underrated uh unloved you know like malone and stick sharky's machine which i think is just a classic of mm -hmm. 80s crime cinema um so yeah, I went film by film. I said, you know, there, there's plenty of stuff out there on Burt Reynolds. He was definitely not someone who wasn't written about, but often it wasn't about the movies. It was about his personal life, the more kind of tabloid aspects of his, of his uh, celebrity, you, you could say. So I wanted to really dig in and kind of discuss his career as a, as a director, as well as an actor. I mean, he was a fantastic director as well. So I, I wrote about every film he ever done, which was a lot. So... The only difference was, whereas I, it took me five years to write the first book because I didn't have a contract, I didn't have a deadline. I took my time with this. I, I, I kind of sold it as a pitch. So I had a deadline of one year to write about, you know, 150 movies, which was different <laughs> to writing about seven movies over five years, you know. <laughs> so I went from there to writing about Nick McLean, who's a, an amazing cinematographer. You've seen his work. You know, it, he, he's shot films like The Goonies, Deer Hunter, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, um, Willow, oh, Friends, the TV show, for God's sake. He, he's just an amazing, <laughs> prolific 
cameraman and cinematographer. And he did my forward for the Burt Reynolds book because he was very good friends with Burt Reynolds and he had worked with him a lot, a lot. He shot a lot of his movies. And Nick was just one of those people I connected with. We became very good friends. And I said to him one day, you know, Nick, I'm a huge fan of, of, your, of your work as a cinematographer. I'm, I'm shocked there's no book written about you. And he says, well, you know, I've, I've actually been, been trying. I've been kind of working on it and it just hasn't been coming together. So I said, well, listen, if you want, let's work together. And he was all up for that. So I approached the publisher. We got a deal for that straight away. And again, a year deadline. So I worked on that kind of at the tail end of the Burt Reynolds book. So I was working on the two of them together. So they kind of came out within three or four months of each other in the end. And then, you know, I had an opportunity to work on another book with the, with the same publisher. And I thought about, well, what do I want to write about next? I had this kind of run of, I was writing about things that I love, that really meant something to me growing up as a movie fan. So Tom DeCillo, Burt Reynolds, Nick McLean, whose movies I, I adored. So I said, Nightmare on Elm Street. That's something I've always wanted to write about in some kind of long form because, you know, I've written articles about it. I've, I've talked about it, you know, when I'm teaching classes and stuff like that. And I thought, wow, this is a great opportunity to really dig into all those ideas and themes that I love about the series that you don't really hear about too often. I mean, when you look at the documentaries, sometimes Wes Craven, when he's been interviewed, he kind of alludes to those, you know, themes that inspired the film and which are kind of running through the series. But never, there was never really a long form kind of essay or book. So I said, well, OK, I'm going to do it. And I, I didn't know if I'd be able to get people like Robert England or some of the actors or some of the people on board. You know, they, some of them are hard to reach, They're like Chuck Russell, who did um, Dream Warriors. He's not on social media. You know, I didn't have any contacts with him. In the end, I can't even remember how I did get him. It was through somebody else. Oh, Mick Garris, actually. Mick Garris hooked nice. me with him. Um, you know, it just kind of fell into place. All, all these people, you know, who are, I didn't think I'd ever be able to reach just fell into place because of one connection or another, you know, so I was so happy with that. And then the the next two books, I'm working, currently working on a Walter Hill book. Oh. Again, one of my absolutely favorite directors of all time. He's a, he's a genius. I think he's one of the last remaining masters. Um, so more, I, I was interviewing Walter recently. I'll be intervie- interviewing him again soon. I've talked to loads of his actors, his DPs, his editors, his writers. And I just signed a deal for a book last week, which is actually a, a music book. So it's my, my first non-movie book. And I'm co-writing that with one of my best friends who's a professional musician, Amanda Kramer. So it's nonstop. And what kind of music is that? So it's the book is kind of, it's from a female professional musician's perspective. So it's about kind of touring session musicians, you know, mm. so we're interviewing a lot of, people who have worked with some high profile artists um, or they've come from bands who are, who are big and important at one stage. So Amanda come from, comes from that world. You know, she is a professional musician for four decades. She's worked with some amazing acts. Like she's currently a, she's a member of the Psychedelic Furs. She's been with 10,000 Maniacs, Susie Sue, people like that. So um, yeah, so that, we're working on that together and just interviewing all these people, getting all the information and research together and then going to put this book kind of just music industry and touring life from the perspective of female session musicians. That's really cool. I love that you've been, done a lot of passion projects and made your life out of passion pro- or made your, made your life passion projects. That's so cool. So cool. Awesome. to do somebody love. I love that your first book, like you're wearing a misfit shirt. Your first book was, was it's super punk, right? Like you just said, I'm just going to do it. Screw right. your schooling. And it became really <laughs> successful. That's awesome, dude. 
Oh, thanks, Pat. It's, it, I always say to anybody, because I get a lot of kids ask me, how do you get into this kind of thing? And there's no prescribed path. I mean, it's everybody's path is so different. You just have to do it. You know, if, if you have a book or a song or an album or a movie in mind, you just you just have to do it. Because if you're going to wait for the, the gatekeepers to let you in, you'll be waiting. I mean, I mean that's a very Nightmare on Elm Street when you really think about it. That's, that's, that's mm-hmm. rad. Thanks, man. Yeah, so... No, I was going to say it brought me here, which I'm, I'm very happy about. You know, true. I think it was true Walter the Walter Hill thing I put up, or something about Tales from the Crypt on Instagram, which ultimately led me here. So it, it, it's cool, it's like to kind of to be able to reach out to people in different different sectors of culture. You know what I mean? To go from say Tom DeChino to Burt Reynolds to Nightmare Down Street, I think is so cool because mm-hmm. we get to talk to guys like you and be on this. Oh man, we love having having you guys here and. Uh... Uh, props to Jason. I'll, I'll um, give Jason some props here. Like uh, Jason's got us in touch with cool people just by asking. And I'm just blown yeah. away by, you know, we, we sometimes think that like these celebrities are behind a, a gold wall or behind something. And sometimes just asking and saying, Hey, like, can we chat? They're people and they love talking yeah. about their craft. And it's, it's yeah. super awesome. Like you, you love, you want to talk about your craft. And it's love. We love being able to get people like you and, you know, people like John Kassir and whoever else to, to come talk with us about, you know, whatever. You know, and uh, William Sadler, who you William know, I, got, Sadler. I got his information to you for. Oh, man, that was great. Yeah, he was so cool because, yeah, that covered um, several sections of my Walter Hill book and, you know, Tales from the Crypt, obviously, and Trespass, which was one of my favorite movies. And I interviewed so many people from Trespass, but I didn't have any of the actors. So to get Bill in there was just terrific. And you guys know he's, he's oh, a really, awesome. really oh, he good humored guy. Loves just the nicest book. guy. Yeah. Oh, man. And, and, and that's a great career. And that and that's really the trick is is not only asking but being able to take no because you get no or no replies a lot so the ratio is crazy yeah. but when you, when you, but it only takes a few yeses to you know get things moving yeah and strangely enough there's certain topics I mean Walter Hill it was one of those things where people respected him so much they wanted to be sure that this was legit before they kind of came on board you know and. Sure. You know, once I had, because I, again, because I built up some contacts from previous books, they were able to almost kind of go to, you know, this guy's legit. It, he's not about the kind of the celebrity stuff. It's about the art. It's about the films. So they can trust me, you know, when it comes to things like that. So once I got one or two people on board, that just opened the floodgates for everybody else because they go, oh, you spoke to so-and-so? Okay, that's fine. Mm-hmm. So, you know, but uh, getting to Walter was was the hardest probably because, like I say, he's, he's like some of these other people. He's, he's off the grid in terms of, He's not on social media, so you don't have that direct contact. You know, you might have to go to an agency or a manager or something like that. Mm-hmm. But again, and then they would kind of filter that kind of thing as well, where, okay, well, who's publishing you? Who, did, who else did you talk to? You know, so, but once once you get him, he, he's fantastic, you know. Did you consider a uh, Tales of the Crypt book? <laughs> you know, I, I, oh, man. It's, Walter's, he, he's... He's such an enigmatic guy, you know, he, he doesn't like or he doesn't seem to kind of enjoy talking about himself or his movies too much. He doesn't big himself up, you know, that kind of way. So I, I kind of I, as I was talking to him, I kind of learned that, you know, what I mean, there's certain things that, you know, other, you're, you're better off going to other people for. So, Walter, you kind of we scratched the surface on pretty much everything, every film he's done. Tales from the Crypt, he talked a little bit about, you know, but I didn't go in too deep on each individual episode. And plus, you know, he, he he co-produced that with four other big heavy hitter producers. So, you know, his involvement is kind of, you know, limited to a degree in the terms of what he can talk about. But um, it was great, you know, because I got everybody else on board from from different movies. It kind of fills out the story 
you know, but he's just, he's, he's such a humble man, you know, for somebody who is elevated to, to that status in, in Hollywood of almost a legend at this stage, you know, for, for him to open up to a, a guy from Ireland just knocking on his door going, hey, talk to me, will you? <laughs> you know, but um, yeah, I was, I was super excited to get him again. I Going into this, I didn't know if I'd, I'd, ever, if I'd reach him because he's, as I say, he doesn't really do interviews a whole lot. So for someone to be writing a whole book on him, I'm sure he was probably like, oh, God, who's this guy? <laughs> <laughs> he, he might have taken those. He might have really taken it as flattering because you know, he sounds like a guy that might not really understand how much he's loved or how much impact his work has. And this might have kind of flipped that switch in his brain and realized somebody wants to write a book on me. That's pretty, it's pretty cool. Yeah, I, absolutely. And I, I had to be kind of careful. I didn't want to be, come across as pretentious either because he's not that kind of guy. I didn't want to be digging into kind of deep intellectual teams in the films. That's not really what Walter's about. You know, he's, he comes from that old school of, you know, William Wellman, John Ford, Howard Hawks, those old kind of classic masters who were, they were great artists, but they're supreme craftsmen. They knew how to make a great mainstream Hollywood film that had some great depth, but had amazing filmmaking going on. And, you know, you kind of, depending on who you're talking to, you kind of adjust, you know, what, what you're going to be discussing about as you kind of realize what, what their approach to the material is, you know. So Walter, it's very much more about some of the the, the story ideas, you know, the the craftsmanship, but kind of not really digging too deep into pretentious teams that I, I might mine elsewhere, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, all, all roads lead back to Tales from the Crypt. Um, do you have any favorite Tales from the Crypt episodes or memories? Yeah, well, the first one I ever saw, God, what year was it? I was probably about eight or nine. <laughs> which was, I think it's called Carrion Debt. Yeah. Mm, with, yeah. with Colin McLaughlin. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I came across a VHS tape of it. Um, and I just took a chance on it. I, I'd, I'd heard of it. I'd seen the trailers on TV, the TV spots. And I was curious because I, I was a you know a horror fan as a kid. So I bought that. I was on, there was another episode on with it. And I think it was the one that Tom Hanks directed. Um, I can't think of the name of it. But it was the one where... I think is a cheating the the husband this guy marries an old lady or something like that and he does he does he try and poison her or something i can't remember oh. the story i haven't seen it since i mean that sounds like most of the tales of crypt yeah, it, it, it was yeah. I, I don't remember but it was called none but the lonely heart and it featured yeah. sugar ray leonard mm-hmm. i don't think that was it yeah <laughs> we haven't gotten there yet in our or going through them yet, but uh i do kind of yeah. remember that one it was a cool episode, but I really liked Carrie and Death. That's the one I really that. remember of those two. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, over the years then, I, I did kind of, you know, dip in and out of it because um, obviously Demon Knight came out and I rented that when it came out. Mm. It was, I don't know if it was a cinema release over in the States, but it came straight oh, to yeah. video over here. Um, and then Bordello of Blood, which was another straight to video over here, which I really enjoy. It doesn't seem to have as much love as um, Demon Knight. But then there was, there was a bit of a gap and there was that movie Ritual came out in yeah. the early 2000s. Yeah. And that's uh, no, unfortunate. Not <laughs> yeah. And the, the interesting thing is over here, there was no Tales from the Crypt connection really, other than I think it was Tales from the Crypt Presents, but there's no introduction from the Crypt Keeper or there's no um, wraparound. It literally just, it's, it's like a standalone movie. And I've seen the American version with the Crypt Keeper and, you know, it, it just eases you into the whole thing a little bit better because you can put it in that context. But when you're watching it just in and of itself, it's just really a, a cheap, crappy B-movie. <laughs> yeah, that intro gives it immediately, drops you in that campy world. And you, you know exactly. what to expect at that point. It sets you up for that as opposed to just 
I couldn't imagine being dropped right into that movie and not knowing it was a Tales from the Crypt uh, uh, present. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's the weird thing about Bordello Blood because it doesn't it, it saves the Crypt Keeper bit for like a few minutes. Mm-hmm. So at first, you're like, wait, did I walk into the wrong the wrong movie? Because it goes into the jungle <laughs> and everything before the Crypt Keeper yeah. shows up. <laughs> Yeah, and that was it. That was another um, thing I loved about writing about the Walter Hill book was the getting to touch upon um, Demon Knight, you know, which I think is just a really, really cool mid nineties. Oh yeah, we're so huge so Demon Knight fun. fans. Yeah, yeah. Well, when we had a rewatch over the podcast, I forgot how great it was. I was like, man, this is how did I not? How did I not watch this? You know, Jason watches that movie once a year at least. Oh, and I was man. thinking, at like, least a couple every couple months. Yeah, I'm like, how do I? How have I slept on this for so long? I've watched it in the past, but I was like, God, it's such a good movie. Oh, it is. Absolutely. And actually, I know I'm kind of <clears throat> preferential here, but I, I think The Man Who Was Dead is probably my favorite episode of all. Yeah. I think it's, yeah. and it's such a Walter Hill piece as well, because you have Carmel Davies editing, you have John Leonetti, the cinematographer, the music with Roy Cooter. It's just, it's a superb little snippet of, of Walter Hill there. And mm-hmm. just, it's, 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 it's everything about Tales from the Crypt that I love. You know, you have this kind of moralistic kind of thing going on where the guy who he loves he loves frying people and then he gets his just desserts in the end i mean that's that's really tales from the crypt isn't it yeah i think 100%. that first episode sets a really good plate and it uh really sets a really good expectation for the entire series absolutely and it sets a high bar as well from a yeah. filmmaking perspective i think it's it's beautifully shot beautifully scored it's like a little it's a mini movie and that's what i loved about about tales from the crypt is when you got these great directors in there who give you just little slices of of them you know, they bring their own kind of auteur aesthetics to it. It's not just a cookie cutter TV show where the a director slides in and you wouldn't notice any difference. You have directors in there who bring their own little touches to the stuff like you have William Malone, Jack Shoulder, and Schwarzenegger, for God's sake, director. Yeah. So, so. You know, that's what Jack, when I Jack Shoulder, that's one of the things he said is that, like, he, want, he, he tried to do, like, episodes of TV shows, but he always wanted to do it his way, his style. But they're like, no, we have, yeah. a, we have a way of doing things. Which yeah. kind of makes sense when it's episodic TV where there's a uh, a flow and a story. Mm-hmm. But Tales in the Crypt, yeah. you can bring in anybody and they can do whatever they want. Absolutely. And Tom DeCillo, um, he went on, between some movies, he did some TV. And one of those was Law and Order. Oh. And if you guys ever watched that, you'll know that it's the style of it is pretty much set in stone. You know, mm-hmm. so it doesn't really matter what director comes in. It's going to kind of conform to this preset um, kind of aesthetic and that's it's one of the unfortunate things that like you know when a great director is put in that that seat that they can't bring their own little touches to it but you, you kind of understand when once once a show is kind of known for a certain style well you you have to kind of go along with that but the, that was one of the cool things about tales from the crypt and also freddy's nightmares i think as well which was a very underrated show you had some great writers great directors in there who brought some cool little touches i mean if you ever look at william malone's episodes they're so darkly humorous and just mad and out there you know so that's what i love about these 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 horror anthology shows another great one i thought was um tales from the dark side really loved that oh yeah great great show um ray bradbury theater loved that there were some great directors who worked on that who went on to become big names you know so that's what i love i love horror anthology i really do it really gives us directors and actors an, an opportunity to just kind of do whatever they want and have fun with it and kind of be outlandish and maybe, mm-hmm. you know, get out, think outside their, their usual comfort zone and box. And it's always fun. Yeah, absolutely. And one of my favorite movies of all time is Body Bags, which is okay. two parts. John yeah. Carpenter, yeah. Yeah, two parts John Carpenter, one part Toby Hooper. Yeah. And again, it's like just these little snippets of genius of what it is about these guys that are so great. And there is a film which is so... <clears throat> 
well, over here anyway, unknown. And, you know, I saw that when I was 10 years old and it just became instantly one of my favorite movies. And I picked up the Shout Factory release there last year, which I was so happy, you know, beautiful widescreen print with extra features and commentaries. I'm like, finally, you know, someone's showing this movie some love. Well, speaking of that, I mean, you look at John Carpenter in that movie and he looks like he's just having a time of his life. He's having a great time playing that character and uh, it, it really shines through on the screen. Absolutely. And what a, what a great cast as well. All these great people. And I think half the people who are in that movie are you know, in Walter Hill's movies, you know, so for me, it's kind of like spot the cool actor kind of thing, you know, but um, Stacey Keach <laughs> in hair is just one of the great pieces of casting of all time. Just superb. Definitely. Uh, Jordi Mondo, anything else we want to uh, hit on before we move on? I mean, I definitely want to check out all these books now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, thanks, definitely. Guys. I haven't, got, I've been busy. I haven't got a chance yet to read the, um, uh, the stuff that Jason forwarded on to me, but uh, I think I'm just, I'll just buy your book and read it when it comes out because, like, I'm a diehard. And I, like, I pitched to Jason one, one night. I had a few beers, which is common for me, and uh, I uh, pitched to Jason that we did we do a, a spinoff called Dads from Elm Street and go through all the oh, Elm Street man. films because, like, that's the Elm Street series is my comfort zone. Like, I love like I go back and watch. I'll pick a random one and watch it just because I love those movies so much. And I always pick out. I've seen it a million times, and I always pick out little things uh, that are just so much fun or callbacks to the old ones. Um, so I, I'm really excited for your book. Oh, thanks so much, man. I'm, I'm the same. For me, Elm Street has always been there. It's always been something for me to kind of go back to. And I think that's where I, I built up this kind of tension that I wanted to release in book form. You know, all these ideas <laughs> that I've been seeing in the, in the, in the films over the years and, and in the TV show. I mean, uh, Freddy's Nightmares, I think, is just this great well of Elm Street material that just you know, kind of got lost over the years because it, it wasn't really well received. It hasn't been hasn't really been rediscovered. And I know there's been some issues with re-releasing it on, yeah. um, on, on home <laughs> video or whatever. But um, over here, at least, it did get a, a VHS kind of, um, I don't know how to call it, but it was kind of, they would release two episodes on, on a tape at a time. Yes, we got those uh, two. Yeah, so the way I looked at it was when I was a kid, when I'd go into the video store, and if you were tired of renting part three or four again, You'd go for one of these and you'd be watching me go, geez, this is weird. Because I didn't, I didn't quite grasp that this was an ontology thing, which was kind of like separate. So I was thinking they were just another movie. And, you know, over time, of course, I understood that, oh, it's a TV show. And then I discovered there was a channel that we got eventually, which showed it every Friday night. And then I discovered, That's oh, this cool. is a whole other, whole other world. And, you know, it's, I think it's cheap production values and, you know, oddball sense of humor can kind of grabbed my attention as a kid you know what i mean because i came into this whole thing as when three and four were really big so i was it was kind of when when freddy krueger was blown up into this kind of pop cultural event i guess so i, I wasn't too fussy about it being with you know kind of humorous it's only over time then when you go back to the older films and you realize oh this has some really dark origins you know and it became really interesting but i think that series is very underrated from a i wouldn't say a filmmaking perspective i mean it's, it's just it's it's bonkers. It's so out there. But when you realize all the people who were working on it and the kind of what, what one thing people said was they had great creative freedom with it. You know, I actually spoke to a good few people from that show, which I was so excited about because the, the book itself actually originated from an idea of wanting to do something on the series. And the more I thought about it, it was like, yeah, it was the series that kind of sparked my idea because cool. I thought there's so little out there on Freddy's Nightmares in terms of production and what went on. I know there, there was the segment in um, the Elm Street Legacy, remember the documentary yeah. that came out, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, which was, you know, which, which was really cool, but I, I wanted more. I just wanted to know what the hell went into this 
show and what went wrong and all this. And all the directors I spoke to said they had such great creative freedom. But the problem was the budgets went lower and lower as as the show went on. <clears throat> so, you know, filmmakers had to get more creative. Um, but the thing is, they were allowed to do that. You know, there was no kind of a set formula to how the show was supposed to run other than the idea of the second half of the show had to connect somehow to the first, you know, yeah, but um, yeah. people got really creative on that show. And, you know, that's that's one of the things I really wanted to celelebrate was just some fantastic filmmakers in there and that's some, cool. some great, great actors as well. And a lot of people don't realize, you know, everyone clamors. Everyone wants the uh, the Nightmare prequel, right? The origin story. And Freddy's Nightmares did it. Yeah. And Absolutely. I think a lot of people don't know that and just got glossed over. But it was actually, I thought it was pretty well done. Um, there's also just a it's related but unrelated is there's a lot of really cool um, fan films that people have been doing for Nightmare on Elm Street and for, you know, Friday mm-hmm. the 13th and stuff. But they have a, a couple Nightmare on Elm Street ones about Freddy's origin that were fan films that just kind of knocked out of the park. And I love it because it's just, you know, like guerrilla filmmaking, just yeah. people with a true love for the genre, just try to do something with it with so much yeah. respect for the source material. Yeah. yeah. Isn't that one of the cool things about the horror genre and <clears throat> horror fandom in general? Excuse me, guys. <clears throat> Is that, um, that people, people are proactive. Pro- fans are proactive. They want to really keep the legacies of these stories going whether it's books, documentaries, or fan films. And that's, I, I love that kind of community. You know what I mean? That people just want to keep these things alive. And, you know, because sometimes when the studios are, if they feel the property is not making money or whatever, they're just going to sit there on a shelf, you know? So it's, it's a shame. Really? That, that studio, the studios don't kind of follow through on, on things such as Freddy's Nightmares. I mean, I think Warner Brothers canceled the DVD release that was due to come out over here anyway. They released a volume one, which had the first three episodes and they canceled the release because it sold so poorly. But then again, what, what kind of marketing did they put into it? You know, did people know about it? I don't think, did they give it enough time for it to kind of find its audience? It's like as if, well, sales didn't hit a certain target by this time period, well, then we'll just cancel it, which is just ridiculous because especially with a property like Elm Street, I mean, the title itself should really sell it, you yeah. know? I mean, I'm blown away by the fact that my book has been on some of the bestseller lists on Amazon. I'm like, Awesome. Going back months. And it's like, how the hell? Because I've been doing some promo over here, you know, magazines and newspapers, but I never expected it to be high on these kind of um, horror bestseller lists or even sci-fi and fancy. I'm like, how the hell? But then, like I say, it's the title is its own best marketing tool. It's Elm Street. If you write it, they'll come, <laughs> you know, just put it out to the universe. Yeah. And, well, yeah. When, when you have this, this built-in fandom too, like I, I've heard from actors who didn't usually work in the horror genre who have done a horror movie and they're like, I have stepped into this wonderful place full of the most passionate fans and the most passionate people who really like, they, they love these movies and, you know, even movies that came out 30, 40 years ago, they love yeah. them so much. They're keeping them alive. And uh, I don't think you get that. I don't think, uh, I don't think there's a romantic comedy cons where people no. come together and talk <laughs> about movies from 35 years ago, but and you know, and, and the horror genre, you just, you, you have this, kind of special community around it. And I, I think that's really cool. Yeah. And I was, I was speaking to Lisa Gottlieb, who is known for her romantic comedies, but she had worked on some episodes of Freddy's Nightmares. And she was doing some of these cons, you know, for 80s cult movies or whatever. And she said in, increasingly over time, because she would put it on her on her banner, that the stuff she's worked on and Freddy's Nightmares, of course, would be on it. But people started noticing, oh, you worked on Freddy's Nightmares. So she started slowly building up this kind of fan base of people who were coming to her cons or the cons where she, her table and they were bringing stuff to sign, Freddy stuff, Elm Street memorabilia, you know, it's cool. kind of 
you know, she didn't realize that there was this whole fan base, this rabid fan base there. And incidentally, like a lot of people I spoke to for the book weren't horror fans. They weren't necessarily people who came from the horror world, but because they, they worked on a Freddy movie or maybe a couple of Freddy movies, it's, it's, it's made, it's built this fan base for them around that, you know, and so in some cases it's led on to great careers or it's just led on to just this, you know, acceptance within, within the community. And it's, it's a great thing, you know, to be, to be lauded for, for something, even if it's your, your one dip into the horror genre, but you're remembered for it and celebrated for it. You know, yeah. I, I've told the story to these guys off air, but I met Michael Rooker, obviously from, uh, a Walking Dead fame and now Guardians of the Galaxy fame. And uh, I used to work for Apple and he was out there and needed help with his iPhone. So I went to go help him and everyone's like, oh, it's Merle. I'm like, no, that's Henry. And yeah. uh, <laughs> he, he had some liquor in him. So he blew up right away. He goes, oh, you're a fucking her- You're a horror nerd. <laughs> he goes, all you nerds know me from Henry. But he was super appreciative of it. Like he, he was saying it in jest, right? Like, And then I held his phone. We had a good conversation. And he loved the fact that I knew him from Henry because um, oh, I – I think a lot of those actresses and actors disrespect the way that horrors treated them and the fans have treated them. And it's pretty great. Um, yeah. I, I, I was going to say, I hope that like one of my hopes is that uh, movies become much like the music industry does. Cause there's so many small record labels that'll buy the rights to an album from a larger label and then release it on vinyl or on cassette tape and sell out. And now suddenly that major label has interest again in this band. And mm-hmm. like I would, I wish that like Shout Factory or, or or somebody could buy the rights to Freddy's Nightmares, put it on Blu-ray, sell a shit ton, and then Warner Brothers be like our new line, be like, oh, huh, we could do something with this. Exactly, yeah. I think that's one of the beautiful things about the the boutique labels at the moment, re-releasing like, like say Body Bags and these kind of yeah. cult '80s movies that yeah. we we know and love, but have been unappreciated by their studios for many years, and now they're getting these beautiful treatments. And I, I, you know, some people say it's the era of the decline of physical media, but I think it's a golden age if you're a oh, real wow. movie fan because of all these boutique labels which are racing things which have either not been available for years or just have been kind of languishing in terrible editions, you know, with the studios. Like Vinegar but, Syndrome. Um, yeah. Arrow. I mean, Arrow, oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, Arrow makes some beautiful, well, <laughs> beautiful Blu-rays. One thing about Arrow is Arrow puts all their stuff on iTunes for like $3. Yeah. So you have, you know, horror fans that are buying that stuff for $3, probably taking a stab at like Deep Red or Tenebrae or whatever else they release. And like it's that's going to create a whole new genre of horror fans because they see it in the iTunes bestsellers and say, yeah, I'll take a chance at this for $3. And next thing you know, they're seeking out Argento's entire catalog. So it's a really beautiful thing. Oh, it's a, it's a great way in for people, I think, especially younger kids who aren't, you know, didn't grow up on maybe the VHS era like us. So they're dipping their toe in and they're, they're getting to see the films really at their at their best in terms of presentation because you know they're often in, they're generally widescreen great prints mm-hmm. whereas we might have experienced them for the first time on a four <laughs> by three dodgy vhs with a terrible print you know <laughs> De- <laughs> definitely using the tracking to try to figure out what leatherface is doing <laughs> yeah and probably often cut because these versions coming out are usually now they're uncut they're untouched yeah. by the sensors which is great because god i remember my very first VHS tape of Suspiria and it was the most horrible washed out print and most obvious cuts by the censor you know it didn't make sense but when I first saw it then on a lovely I think Blue Underground edition yes. and it was like a whole, a whole different experience you know whole different experience but speaking of um, boutique labels and, and music record labels I recently purchased a Freddy's Nightmares vinyl soundtrack which just came oh, yeah. out I uh, couldn't believe it was it Freddy's Greatest Hits? No. Oh, it was, it was a Freddy's um, Nightmares vinyl. Okay. Yeah, that just yeah, came out. I saw that. The, 
the composer Nicholas Pike actually told me about it that it was it was coming out, but there were some difficulties with with getting the master tapes and getting some of the rights. But they they did it, and I was shocked. I went on and I saw they had a special edition three vinyl package, but was sold out within hours. And I was like, holy shit! If that can sell out within <laughs> hours, why are not why are Warner Brothers not releasing the actual show? Uh, I have to ask you: Do you know what label that came out on? Um. Oh God! I was it Waxwork. Yes, that sounds familiar. Okay. Yeah. They put out I just got their Bloodsport soundtrack in the mail today. They put out really, really oh, great man. soundtracks. What a soundtrack. I love Bloodsport. <laughs> Me too. Such a fun movie. It's one of those movies and not to get off topic, but I, I'm always known for getting off topic. But I, I rewatched that like a year ago. I was like, holy shit, this movie's amazing. Like <laughs> it was better than I remembered as a kid. Oh man, I love it. I got, I got a Blu-ray of it actually recently. It's on with Time Cop. Strangely enough, it's not it doesn't make the, the most ideal double bill, but you know, I'm just happy to have it in a it's nice fandom. That's cool. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Are we ready to move on? Sure. Yeah. Let's okay. do some rankings. Okay. Let's go on to our ranking discussion. Now, I have asked each of you to give your ranking of the Nightmare series from the original to New Nightmare. The criteria was to do your personal preference. When you're in the mood for some Freddy, which movies are you most likely to reach for? Now, these are our personal opinions. If you disagree, this doesn't invalidate your opinion. Everyone is free to love or hate each of these movies in their own way. Now, to facilitate this discussion, we will start with the lowest rated movie and move our way up. For those of you who um, have listened to Bloody Good Horror, I'm doing it kind of schnar style, where I've weighted each ranking. So if a movie was rated first, I gave it seven points, second, six points, and so on. Um, and then uh, we had actually two ties. So I Ooh. then I went to a second tiebreaker was how high was each movie ranked? Um, and we'll talk about the ties in a moment. Now, I will call on each of you to defend or rip into each movie, um, starting with the person who had it ranked the highest. So um, no one knows uh, the, the order. Uh, so we're going to get everyone's reactions in real time, ex obviously, except for me. Um, <laughs> You so can act shocked, game? though. You can pretend like you're shocked by the, ah, the list yeah. you made. <laughs> okay, so we're going to get started with number seven, the lowest. Um, this is actually the only unanimous uh, decision that we had in our entire ba ballot. <laughs> All four of us ranked this movie as the worst nightmare movie, and it is Nightmare on Elm Street 5, The Dream Child. <laughs> and for this one, I'm going to call on Jody to start us off. So, Jody... Uh, the floor is yours. For the record, Jody looked shocked when Jason called on him. So <laughs> I know, shocked. No, I, I was unprepared to uh, to jump right into the dream child. Uh, I mean, here's the thing: when we say the worst, I mean we're we're kind of grading on a curve here, though, right? Because like I don't hate any of these movies. Like all of these movies, I think are worth watching, even Agreed. the the worst one. Okay. Obviously, we, we are not talking about the remakes. <laughs> no, 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 no. That. That's a whole different thing. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not even talking about that. So the, the Dream Child, really the biggest thing about the Dream Child and why it's kind of ranked low for me is it's just not as memorable as some of the other ones. You know, like, I, when I, like if you're asking me off the top of my head to like name scenes, it's not the easiest one for me to do. I have to like dig into my brain a little bit to come real, up with something. Real fast, Jody, can I ask you the one scene you remember? Because I bet we're all probably on the same page on that. Well, it's actually not a death scene. The, the, oh. the, the one thing I do actually like about this is you get a little more Freddy backstory in this one. That's particularly Amanda Krueger 
in the convent, all of that stuff. I like that. Like I, I, I like getting a little bit of uh, the bastard son of a thousand maniacs kind of stuff, you know, like I like seeing where Freddie came from. So yeah, no, there, there are definitely death scenes that, you know, if I think about it, I go, Oh yeah, that one is from five. Yes. But you know, overall the, the biggest knock against this one is just, I, it's just kind of forgettable. It's not as wacky as some of the wacky ones. It's not as scary as the scary ones. It's just, kind of there but it's still I, i'd still watch it again if somebody said you want to watch nightmare five I'm like yeah sure let's do it yeah there's basically three main deaths in this one and two of them are actually really good the greta death is just really gross um where freddie's basically feeding her to herself yeah uh, the and greta then, death's one of those deaths that really kind of haunted me when i, when I was a kid yeah. to watch this oh it's, I, it's disturbing yeah yeah that's, that one's really disturbing and the dan death when he's in, being fused to a motorcycle is very like cronenbergian Cronenbergian, however you want to say that. It's very body horror. Yeah, that's really disturbing. You could say the Greta death's also pretty pretty yeah. body horror, too. Yeah. Definitely. But then there's Mark in that Super Freddy sequence and the Phantom Prowler or whatever it is. That's just was really stupid. Can I say, though, <laughs> that, that that action figure... I actually sent I sent one to Jody. Um, I have the, it right here. The, yeah, he's going to show the black and white action figure of Freddy on the skateboard <laughs> is like my favorite action figure of all time. Yeah, that's cool. It it's also pretty skateboard. skateboard. I got also. the whole thing. And for some <laughs> reason, it stays standing better than any figure I've ever owned. It does. I don't understand it. <laughs> it has little wheels on the skateboard, but it doesn't fall down. But oh. meanwhile, Peter Parker up here falls down every day. So yeah, this Freddy is really cool. And you know, again, there are some definite, definite memorable moments in it. But just if I'm thinking of the series as a whole, there's just not as much going on here. Right. And also the whole baby Jacob thing is just really not good. Yeah. I think for me it was the the tone was completely wrong for that time. You know, yeah. coming yeah. after coming after four, which mm-hmm. is very much the the MTV pop culture icon Freddie movie. And then to go into this really dark territory, you know, which is it's got to you know, the production design is, is beautiful and all that. I think Stephen Hopkins was just the wrong director for the series at that time. And I think it's it's dealing with some heavy issues there, you know, mm-hmm. which it didn't handle the best, you know, I do like the fact that there's this whole kind of discord going on between the parents and the kids, you know, the parents expecting their children to become essentially versions of them, you know, kind of, you know, the, the kid who gets crushed in the warehouse by the, this, you know, by the box, he's working in his father's warehouse, he doesn't want to be there and he gets, he gets crushed by the boxes in the warehouse. I mean, it's total symbolism, but it's, it's brilliantly brilliant piece of uh, dark humor there but it doesn't really follow through on a lot of these ideas terribly well, I don't think it's dealing with some deep stuff, you know, the whole issue of abortion and all that as well, which is in there. But ultimately, at the end of the day, it's a very much, it's a, it's a throwaway Freddy movie and it just doesn't have the, I don't think it handles the, the substance very well. Yeah. And like you mentioned, I think some of that subtext is really kind of forced. Um, it, 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 it kind of, it really, it really kind of hits you like a, like a ton of bricks and feels out of place. Like, um, you know, where some of the best that they've done in Nightmare on Elm Street has been like, um, and we'll get into other movies later, but it's been when they have that subtext, but it's kind of subtle and you can read into it, you can feel it, but they're not just hitting you over the head with it. Yeah, absolutely. It was, it's, it's kind of caught between being a heavy message film and a throwaway horror movie, you know, and that's, that's where it kind of gets lost. I think sometimes as you say, Elm Street is at its best when it's being entertaining, but the substance mm-hmm. is so strong that you're, you're, you're being fed these great ideas while enjoying a really good horror movie. Definitely. I agree. Okay, we ready to move on? 
yeah. Because uh, I oh, real fast, I'd also agree too. Like I don't hate any Freddy movie. I have to say that. Um, yeah, ex- it's, except it's, for maybe the remake. Maybe the remake. And even in the remake, I actually like Jackie Earl Haley. I actually like yeah. the casting decision. I think he's got yeah. some creepy stuff. I just think he had a terrible fucking script to work with. And oh, it makes it kind of sad because I watch him. I've, I've rewatched that movie a couple times, hoping like maybe I'll get something new out of it. And I'm like, I always think like, what could have been? It's the potential. <laughs> yeah. It's the potential that makes it so yeah. Yeah. terrible. So, so when I say for the record, I'm a huge Freddy versus Jason fan. Not to go off on a tangent. Me too. But yeah, I, me too. Um, I really, really like that film. It's also the first Freddy movie. Actually, it might have been the first Freddy and the first Jason movie I saw in the theater. Oh, really? Uh, maybe at the very end we can just touch on that because I'll, I'll yeah. say it's Freddy versus Jason. Um, what I do love about it is they didn't try to change the mythos, didn't mm-hmm. try to change the backstory. They just merged the worlds together and said, have some fun. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and Freddy dropping Dusty Road style bionic elbows on uh, Jason was pretty mm-hmm. badass. <laughs> right. But again, for the sake of this, sake of this ranking, it was just kind of too messy. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. The next one on our list is again a tie, but it got lower rankings. So it is number. Uh, this one's gonna be number. Did I mess this up? <laughs> yeah. Okay, no, 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 it's okay. It's gonna be number five, uh, six, and it is Nightmare on Elm Street Part Two. And oh. for, the, for that one, uh, Mondo, you're up because you and I rated that number four. I rated that number four. Um, and, and part of it is in nostalgia. Like, I, so one thing to give you some backstory, and uh, and, and Wayne, I'll, I'll send you a picture. My living, my so my wife and I bonded and met we, we well we didn't meet but we bonded over our love of freddy when we first met she had the freddy vhs box set i had the dvd box set that i paid 120 dollars for <laughs> at the age of 18 when i didn't have 120 dollars to spend um, my whole living room is like freddy we have freddy posters there my wife does cool artwork with freddy um like I love the fact my wife's like, not only, I don't say she condones it. She is into it. She's like, fuck yeah, put those Freddy posters on the wall. <laughs> um, and uh, I think one part about number two, a couple things is one is like, I, I really love some of the Freddy's still evil in that movie. He's very, very mm-hmm. evil, very, very dark, but they start adding in a little bit of the playfulness. Um, but the playfulness is never like, you never laugh at him. Like he's yeah. always in this, tonally it's always very dark like i love when i was a kid two scenes haunted me um the first scene i ever saw of any horror film in my life when i walked on my mom watching night on elm street is the transformation when he's coming out of jesse's body mm-hmm. and to this day i think that's one of the best scenes in the history of horror films it's so just disgusting and aggressive and like holy shit when he opens his mouth and you see the eyeball inside i'm getting goosebumps right now thinking about it. i'm not even lying um <laughs> i i love that and i think it was a fact that was the first freddy movie i saw it, it hit me to, at a dark level and to this day that's the most uncomfortable one for me to watch because it's the one that still kind of scares me like that's the one that makes me turn every single light on in my house uh when i watch that movie um because there was no slapstick like there was later, which I don't even mind that. Um, and the fact that now the, as I got older and realized all the, 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 um, uh, the gay themes he was touching upon and it, it was touching upon it in a, uh, it, it wasn't a, a really negative way, if that makes sense. Like I, I know like if you watch the documentary, uh, stream queen, uh, they really dive into that. So I, won't, I don't want to dive into it here. Um, but I really respect the fact that they went in that direction and were okay with it and never really, yeah. shunned it like they don't um 
they don't really make fun of Jesse because of that. They make fun of Jesse because he's a wacky dude, right? Um, yeah. And um, also, if you don't laugh when the dad says, it's that goddamn cheap bird seed you're feeding them, yeah. then you're just not human. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and that's one of the things I love about this movie because I also ranked it for is that there's just so much random shit in this movie. There's demonic parrots blowing up. There's for, That parrot was not demonic. Dog. It just got hot. Yeah. The cheap goddamn mercy. <laughs> there's like dogs with baby faces that are just randomly showing up. There's just so much weirdness and I yeah. and everything. And I that's what I love in the and that's what I love in the good horror movies. Just so much weirdness happening in every scene yeah. that's never boring. Uh, no, I know some people don't like the fact that they kind of brought Freddy into the real world for that, but just that scene at the dinner at the um the barbecue oh. when Oh, so good. Yeah, like it's so good and I have to mention this line because my wife will listen to this is when the guy goes when the guy's trying to reason with them he goes we can help you he goes help yourself fucker <laughs> that's my <laughs> wife's favorite Freddy line of all time it's so great <laughs> I mean that's like the most unhinged Freddy scene that we have we get in the entire series that's it, him just like going ham yeah and you know and it's also uh, another piece of that is also there's a, a frightening aspect of that right when you're young and you're a kid you think your parents can always save you mm-hmm. and watching as an adult now with a child, and, and I know, um, uh, Wayne, I don't know if you have children. I don't, know. I have a 19-year-old, and, and Jody has, like, 8 million children. He has, like, a, 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 he has a, uh, like a cult of children, and Jason's got, got children. Um, imagine, like, you hear your children screaming outside, and you're locked in your bedroom and can't help them. Like, yeah. as, as, a, as rewatch as a parent, that hit me a different level. Like, man, yeah. I never want to feel that helpless. Yeah, I, I, I had that same experience watch, rewatching Scream. You know, a movie that I watched when I was 16 and like the first scene was just a cool, scary scene. But watching it as an adult, that first scene is like heartbreaking. Or when the parents are calling on the phone and they hear the sound. Oh, it's, oh, oh. Or, it's, it's, it's awful. Or it's night- awful as a parent. In that. Nightmare 2, when Grady's parents are trying to get in the door when he's screaming for him. Yeah. And you see the claws come to the door and just blood. Yeah. It's like, I, I couldn't imagine. like That That hit me even harder as an adult yeah. with kids when, yeah. uh, when that happens. So, um, I don't know. I'm, 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 I unapologetically love that movie. Uh, no, I, I definitely, there, there are definitely parts of 2 that I like. Like, they, don't get me wrong. It just... There, there. Some of the things that are really cool to watch don't make much sense at the same time. You know what I'm saying? Like the the thing at the barbecue, it's a cool scene. I just need someone to explain to me why Freddy's there. You know, like yeah. Jason, you're the host. Can you remove Jody from the chat? I'm not hating on it. I just I don't yeah. know. no, I, I totally agree. I think um, I I love part two, and again, yeah. it's, I'm so glad I saw it when I was so young because. I think if I came to it fresh, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd kind of you'd pinpoint those elements which are a little incongruous. But I just loved it. I, I found, as when I was younger, I found it one of the creepier ones mm-hmm. because the, the tone is filled with dread. I think when, when you're when you're young enough and you don't kind of spot those um, those subtle bits of uh, playfulness that are in there. Like, of, of course, I didn't realize, you know, the whole the kind of the homoerotic undertones that are in there when I was that young. I was just enjoying it as this kind of creepy Freddy movie. And I, one of the people I spoke to from it um, was, oh, God. Who's the, I'm blanking on the name now, the composer. Was it Craig Safan? I don't know. No, he was part four. But I was talking to someone for, and they were, they were telling me about the, the sound design. And when you listen back to it, yes, there's all these weird kind of sounds on the soundtrack. And I think it, it really underscores the kind of feeling of dread throughout that movie. It's not a typical musical score in the classical sense. It's kind of it's electronic and it has some just really weird sound design. 
And I think that's part of what makes it such a creepy entry. Mm-hmm. And I do think that it's probably Freddy at his most grotesque in terms of the special effects. It's really, really well done. And it's, he, looks, he looks gaunt. He looks emaciated. You know, there's mm-hmm. something, I don't know, he's, he's not a fun Freddy, really, in this one, even though he is ultimately playing with, with Jesse. But it, it's, not, it's not in a kind of a, a facetious way. If you know what I mean? It's it's more kind of it's very subtle and it's it adds up to a, a great experience. I think Jack Shoulder is a, is a fantastic director as well. Yes. Oh, yeah, you know, uh, completely different in, in in style and aesthetic to Wes Craven, but I I think it just works. And it's a shame that the film kind of does end up kind of on the on the bottom of lists, you know, when when people are ranking these things. But as as we say, you know, all of these films are brilliant. But when we have to put them in order. It's, they're for a reason, I guess. Uh, real fast, because I know whenever like I do this sometimes as the podcast and they get a name wrong, I just yell at the screen or I yell at my car radio. Uh, Christopher <laughs> Young composed it. Um, uh, also, um, two great things in that when he tries to get Jesse to kill his sister, that part just really bothered me. Yeah. And, and I mean it in the best way possible. It bothered me as like a, a visual moment. And um, I also think the scene with the school bus really hit me hard as a kid because a school bus is a safe place. It's a place where you should be safe as a kid. And to see that scene when he's just walking through and slashing the seats, it's like, ooh, ooh. Yeah. This guy's yeah, mad. Know, listening, listening to everyone talk about this, I think probably part of the reason why this isn't one of the ones I pick up as much is Freddie's just, he's nasty in this in a way that makes me kind of uncomfortable that I don't want to be like, oh, I'm going to go chill and watch a Freddie movie. It's just, yeah. ugh. He's very yeah. sadistic in this one. Yeah. yeah. It's funny because I think that kind of way. I had the exact opposite. <laughs> I was I was being terrorized by bullies <laughs> on the school bus when I was a little kid. So to me, like the school bus is like kind of a um, a Lord of the Fly situation where there's just a bus <laughs> driver who doesn't give a fuck yeah. what's <laughs> happening in the back of the bus and the kids can yeah. do whatever they want. So. Sure. That great shot in there in part two where Robert England is the bus driver and you just see yes. him closing the door and it's like, oh, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> and, well, the, the, you're watching like, the, oh shit, no, I'll get off the bus. <laughs> <laughs> right, and it goes into that cool kind of fantasy element of going onto that those cliffs and everything. It was really good natures. Yeah, it's a great scene. But I'll say, you know, look at our. You know, granted, I grew up in a tiny little rural town when I first saw this movie. I grew up in rural Virginia when I watched this movie with thirty people, maybe maybe fifteen kids on a school bus. But look at how we both had different experiences on the school bus, but it both hit us in different visceral ways for that reason. Um, so I th- I thought that's just. Uh, really good and it's also interesting because when you watch the first one to the second one the first one yeah freddy's in it a lot the second one he's just chewing scenery like you yeah. can definitely tell new line new we have something here and we need to put freddy yeah. in this movie as much as possible but yeah. let's give um some credit to mark Patton and kim myers because they're yes there's they have great chemistry and again mark uh being playing one of the only male leads i think the only male lead in the nightmare movie um and then kim backing him up she's they're both very, very solid. And if anyone, if you guys haven't, or anybody listening hasn't seen uh, the Scream Queen documentary with mm-hmm. with, with him, um, please watch it. It's a fascinating yeah. look at that guy in his life. Very good. Very good movie. Yeah. Fine. All right. Let's move on to the next one. So we're up to number five. And this one is the Dream Master, Nightmare on Elm Street number four. And for this one, we're going to Wayne. All right. Well, this was kind of my entry point into Elm Street. You know what I mean? This was, as I say, the pop cultural zenith of freddie certainly over here in ireland um he was everywhere you know um i remember this movie this is kind of a nostalgic kind of thing for me part four because i remember there's a, you guys probably call them a dollar store over there we had a pound shop over here you know you just get these cheap kind of uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. toys and whatever but you know back then when you think about it 
talk about part two just reminds me how mad this is that you could go into this store and I could buy a Freddy doll, a Freddy lunchbox, a Freddy school bag. You know what I mean? But when you think back, you kind of go, holy shit, this guy's a child killer. But part four was such a kind of a, a pop event that he became this kind of uh, this symbol almost for kind of mainstream horror. And I thought it was so brilliant. And I just loved it on that, that level. And I think it was a great entry point for me as well, because it had this MTV kind of aesthetic going on with this, the great soundtrack, all these new wave songs, pop songs, rock songs, you know, so you could enjoy it on, on all these kind of uh, surface levels. And it's a great sequel as well when you start kind of comparing it and putting it in the context of the series. You know, it kind of advances part three and part three had, had advanced on part one. So there's this kind of continuity there. And I think it's just a really, really easily enjoyable film. You know, and Re I think Rennie did a great job. He had come off Prison, which was a smaller kind of B-movie, indie horror movie, whatever it was. And he really stepped up and, and made Elm Street this commercial enterprise. You know, and it's fascinating for me kind of from the, the film history aspect of it that this was the film which really kind of cemented its its place in in film history because it was such a success. And of course, then Freddy's Nightmares started to run run alongside it for me anyway, because by the time it came out on VHS over here, it would have been probably 88, early 89. And that's when Freddy's Nightmares started appearing on the, the TV over here. So I was surrounded by Freddy at this stage. You know, I was renting part three. Four had just come out, so I was experiencing all that. And Freddy's Nightmares was on TV, so I was I was surrounded by Freddy at this stage, you know. And then I went back to parts one and two, and it was interesting because speaking to, about part two there, it reminded me how creepy I found part two. I think I found part two more creepy than part one, you know. Again, it's because of the tone and the atmosphere and all that. And um, I think part four is just—it's a great popcorn movie. You can enjoy it just on that level, or you can you know, dig in deeper into the teams and, you know, the, the issues of, you know, the, between the kids and the parents, what's going on there, you know, um, teen suicide, all those kind of issues, which are throughout the whole series, but which I think really come together very well in part four. And of course, it's really well done from a technical point of view, um, just from the special effects. You know, I talked to Nick Benson, Mick Strawn, Andre Ellingson, all these really cool craftsmen and artists, you know, so, uh, uh, you know, I think it's just, it's a great film. If, if anything, I found it hard to come up with a favourite Elm Street because I was torn between part three and part four. Ultimately, I think part three is the better of the two because it's just so well-directed and so well-written. But I think part four has a special place in my heart. I mean, if I have a comfort movie, Elm Street, it's part four. Love it. Yeah, part four for me is a lot of good and bad so like i like that it was there was continuity from part three to part four that was mm -hmm. kind of cool to have characters returning but we had to replace uh patricia arquette um so the character Kristen is played by a different actress which is really jarring and the dream wars get killed off really quickly uh, real, um, real fast so i i honestly wonder it's jarring for us because we saw it kind of probably after the theatrical release would have been jarring for audiences back then, or would they have just accepted that? Cause I think that does matter. Possibly. But again, they all, but they all get killed off very, very quickly. Yeah. Um, the character Rick was really annoying to me. <laughs> he is the, probably one of the worst death scenes in any of the movies. Jason's a fucking hater. It's cool. I know, <laughs> but it also has probably one of my favorite death scenes was, which is the cockroach sequence by Matt George. That yeah. is just, freaking gross so years ago halloween horror nights in um 
Universal Studios uh, Hollywood had the uh, Freddy house. And one of the rooms you walked into was Freddy's eyes were looking at you and you were inside the, the, the cockroach oh, box. Cool. Oh, no and way. it was so cool. Yeah. <laughs> That's so awesome. Cool. Um, I really like Tuesday the- Night, actually. I thought she was a, she was a good all too brief in the movie as well. I spoke yeah. to her. She, she was fantastic. And I love her song, her team song. That, you know, yes. Just, mm-hmm. you know, again, I think it's, it was the right time for that, that movie to blow up the way it did because you had, um, Tuesday had released uh, a really good, actually uh, pop album and to have her do, doing the team song and have all these other people like Blondie and go West and Dramarama on the soundtrack. It just had Billy Idol. It just added up to this great kind of um, late eighties pop culture extravaganza and I, I still kind of nostalgically go back to it for those reasons I think more than anything you know that's just a, it's a great time and kind of just to revisit that music revisit the the nostalgic feeling that I, I have for it you know that it was just everything just came together for me my love and appreciation of, of Freddie came together with, with part four so that's why it has such a kind of a place in my heart well it's a good part, part four part four is definitely a time capsule you know in a way that some of the other ones aren't like that. If you go to the first Elm Street, it could be kind of set. I, there's 80sness in it, but it's not like an 80s movie. But by the time Part Four rolls around, it is an 80s movie. Like th- that's oh. that's where it is set. That is firmly where you are when you're watching that movie. I, I want to go back to Jason's thoughts, but what I did love about her and about um, the lead the lead the lead character and Taryn and Nancy is that Elm Street introduced like these strong female types. Um, they yeah. weren't victims. Like, yeah, like, you know, she died, right? But she was a badass. And Taryn was a badass. And uh, I really kind of enjoyed that because a lot of films were showing, yeah, they had the final girl. But a lot of times the final girl was a final girl because of what she did and survive. And these women were just fucking, like, like come on, Taryn in number three, just a badass. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, so, yeah. I'm, I'm sorry, Jason. Keep going. I was going to say, I think that this one, one of my favorite parts of this one is Freddy's death sequence. Now, the whole master rhyme thing is stupid, but the whole uh, sequence of him, like of like the, the, the arms and the souls and everything popping out of him, yeah. and the that big like chess piece with like um, Linnea like, Quigley like sticking out, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I love that one, one of the arms is like grabbing a Freddy's mouth and just yeah. pulling it down. It's just like it's just a really grotesque and beautifully rendered piece of special effects. Could we get Linnea on the show? Is that possible? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Anything else for this one? Um. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Real fast. There's a couple of things. Dream Warriors. A. If Rick would have studied a real martial art like jujitsu, he would have done way better. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> there we go. Um. Uh. You know what's funny is like actually, and I, I'm going to say this is what really bugged me about this. So I had a real hard time between this and number uh, and, and Freddy's Dead, and one of the reasons why this one on my list was below Freddy's Dead is because they just did Kincaid dirty. Yeah. Oh yeah. Definitely. Yeah. So um. I have to tell you what I wish would have happened. And um, so when Freddy kills Kincaid, he goes, see you in hell. And Freddy goes, tell him Freddy sent you. I was hoping in Freddy's dead when he went to hell, Kincaid would be there waiting for him, like ready to fuck him up. Like that would have been so amazing. (laughs) Like if Kincaid's in that dream warrior outfit, he's in his, in his dream and just waiting to just fuck Freddy up in, uh, in Freddy's dead. That'd been amazing. I would have rather see Freddy versus Kincaid than Freddy versus Kincaid. <laughs> yeah. Dude, um, I, I bumped into the actor that plays Kincaid, and I'm really upset that I can't remember his name. Um, Ken Soaks? Yes. Ken 
he's trying to make some documentaries and he does some really cool stuff on his website where you can buy bookmarks and postcards autographed to buy him. Um, but I bumped into him by accident the last days I did horror con. I went to here in Vegas and he was just the nicest guy. Mm-hmm. Just mm-hmm. like he really loves the horror genre, loves what it's done for him. Like we talked about earlier, just a, a very gracious person. And um, I was hoping, I think King K should have given Freddie run for his money. Like it should have been a brawl. He, yeah. he died way too easy. They did, they did him dirty. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely one of the most likable of the kid characters. I, I agree. I agree. 100%. All right. Ready to move on? Yeah. All right. So now we're to number four. We're at the very middle. And this one is Freddy's Dead. And I'm going to take this one. because This is one of my actually all-time personal favorites. I had this one as my number two movie. Ooh. To show Ooh. How, how much I love this. Um, this movie's just fun. Yeah. It's the right level of silly Freddy, which you know it might not be everyone's cup of tea, but it's the, it's if you want silly Freddy, this is the one to really go to. Um, it's got a great cast. It's got great cameos. Johnny Depp shows up. You got Roseanne Barr and mm-hmm. uh, what's his name, Tom Arnold. Tom Arnold, and you got yeah. Alice freaking Cooper <laughs> and um, Yafit Koto, who um, was just an awesome actor for just showing up. Um, it's got so many great little bits. You got the power glove. Um, <laughs> it just embraces the silliness. And this is a movie where the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Like each of these by itself is pretty silly. Not might, might not be the best, but put all together in one movie, it's just a great ride for me. Um, also, it has probably the best Freddy flashback sequence. Like if you want a good Freddy backstory. Um, yeah, the dream, the whole dream demon thing is silly, um, but the whole movie's silly. It just goes for it. <laughs> I totally agree with everything you say there, Jason. I think it's a, such a wonderful, I don't even know how to describe it. it for me, it, it, it feels like of an era. You know, we were talking about um, part four being of the late 80s era and so definitive that this is so early 90s because it has all those kind of ironic tones those kind of like nods to pop culture, you know, The Simpsons, Twin Peaks, mm-hmm. Roseanne, you know, and all those music references. Looney Tunes, I think. Looney Tunes, yeah. Uh, Fred, Freddy is Bugs Bunny in this movie. Oh, my um, God. Johnny yeah. Depp with the uh, the, the War on Drugs uh, commercial, yeah. 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 And I, I love the soundtrack. I, my yes. God, it's a Metal Blade soundtrack. So you have the Junk Monkeys, you have early Goo Goo Dolls before they started to become like Bon Jovi, you know, so... It's absolutely brilliant soundtrack, and of course, Iggy Pop at the end with that theme song. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I just love this movie, and I'm 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 shocked again, like part two, that sometimes it does end up down on the kind of the bottom end of, of rankings. Yeah. Um, I think it, you have to go into it with the context of this was Freddie at this point. He had become a pop culture institution, and he was referencing everything around him, which was other pop culture stuff. And I think Rachel Talalay really tapped into that so well on this movie, and. You know, I think it was fitting. I think at, at that stage, Freddie had gone, you know, five was the misstep. They tried to make Freddie, they tried to pull it back and take, take him in a darker direction. It didn't work. By that stage, after part three and four, he, he belonged to pop culture. He belonged to, mm-hmm. the, to the mainstream. Mm-hmm. So why not embrace that, you know? And I think they did a perfect job in terms of, it does have a kind of a, a cheaper look to it. I think the budget had gone down from what it was with, with part four and five. But I think it, it works so well. It has a darker look to it. I did talk to the cinematographer, um, uh, Declan Quinn, who was, was very good. And, you know, again, he was another guy who didn't come from horror. He came from, like Stephen Fireberg on, on part four, came from the indie world and the art movie world. So he brought a different aesthetic to it. 
I think it really works on part five. It, it's not as glossy as, say, part four or part three, but it, it just works so well with the kind of and, and the teams that are there. You know, it, it is such a fun popcorn movie, but I love the parent um, and child relationships in this mm-hmm. movie. Like, look at Carlos's death, you know, the way it brings us into this, the squalor of whatever tenement he, he obviously came from. And the overbearing mother who is obviously, you know, she was just a really strict disciplinarian and his death scene is so horrible with the the Q-tip from hell. You know, I think it's just, oh man, I'm, just, I'm getting goosebumps thinking about this dead. So, much. Uh, so, so first of all, you, you immediately piqued my interest. You mentioned Metal Blade Records as a metalhead. Like I love Metal oh, Blade. Metal Blade does some pretty badass stuff. Um, I, I, I still think it's funny that they actually had the Goo Goo Dolls on their, on their, on their, on their roster at one point before they were super famous. <laughs> yeah. And they had some good albums with them. You know, um, there was one album which I absolutely love. Which the, the name has escaped me, but it had some of the songs actually from Freddie's Dead on it. Um, I think I'm Awake Now was one of my favorite songs of any Freddie movie. I think it's just it get, the guitar playing really nails the kind of the, the melodies yeah. of yeah. that the, the, the composers used. And then it cuts into this kind of, you know, proper crunchy, kind of punky kind of uh, thing. But oh man, I just love Freddie's Dead. Well, I'm um, that it's ranked so highly. Yeah, no, I, I actually do. I mean, <laughs> Even though it wasn't my my top three, I, I did love Freddy's Dead. Like that's one of those films. Like, like you said, that's the first Freddy movie I ever saw in the theater back when it came out. And I was in elementary school, so probably ninety four. Uh, that come out ninety no no ninety four oh, is new ninety one. Yeah, ninety four is new nightmare. Sorry, ninety one. Uh, yeah, ninety one. And, and like you said, I did love how like those death sequences were really kind of um really geared toward each character, right? Um, like Carlos dying because of the the hearing aid, and then um. Just, yeah, and, and, and Freddie laughing. I, I forgot the character's name. And he goes, you think I'm your dad? <laughs> He's like having a good time killing this kid. I'm like, He's like, nah, man. I wanted to get close to my daughter. And I, I thought all of that was really well done. And one of my favorite scenes, two my two favorite scenes the entire movie. Is, uh, I have three favorite scenes. One is the you're fucked map. Like, yeah. come on. Just classic slapstick fucking. But, but it's slapstick, but it's still scary, right? And then um, when she's walking when um the, the lead character she's walking down the streets of elm street and it's a giant freddy chalk painting yeah i just mm-hmm. think that's so like whenever you see that like you, and you you they immediately make it look like it's done by a child that just makes it so terrifying mm-hmm. and um and uh obviously the um uh, the crazy teacher in uh in 1494 freddy <laughs> came back for more um, I love that. Love the power glove. Love the NES scene. Love the war on drugs. Plus, they use Slayer's version of Inagata the Vita. Yeah. Uh, oh, okay. That's that Slayer playing that. Inagata that's the Vita awesome. uh, during the uh, that that dream sequence. So, uh, yeah, uh, Freddy's Dead is a really great movie. Like you brought up, like um, again, they really put impetus on um, the parents not believing the children. And and, mm-hmm. and especially watching that when I was younger, like you know, you know, as a young man with even in. I was 10 years old with some kind of angst um, seeing that was like very relatable because you know, like when, when the dad was basically like talking shit to the kid, cause I should put you in military school or whatever. And no one believed these kids except for Freddie's daughter was the only person that believed the kids. And I do love that. I do love there's a creepy, there is a creepy scene at the end when he's telling her to put the glove on and see how it feels. And then that's, that was like when he went back in that classic Freddy mode. Like, let me add the mm-hmm. uh, the creep factor into this. So, um, uh, and also the Wicked Witch of the West. Come on, yeah. that, that's yeah. fucking that's... that's so great at the beginning. Like, to be honest, it's great, but also as a kid, that scared the shit out of me. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> that's the moment where you're either in or you're out. Yeah, right. 
Absolutely. Like, if you're not in for that moment, then you're not going to like this movie. I, I'd really like to know what someone who was 30 years old in 1991 and loved Freddy thought of that movie when it came out. Yeah. <laughs> That's the point where that person might go, oh, oh, yeah. what, what has happened to this? Yeah, <laughs> just because as a kid, like, that scared me. I loved it. But, you know, it's kind of like the current generation of, of horror fans that, you know, I never want to be that old man yells at clouds like, fuck the country. And everyone, I never want to be that guy because so many horror fans are going to grow up with that. Like, you know, Jason, obviously that had a very big impact on you when you were younger. And um, it had an impact on me, too, being as the first Nightmare on Elm Street movie I saw in a theater. So, yeah. I think the you mentioned there that the, the death scenes tie in so brilliantly with the kids' backstories. And my, yeah. my favorite <laughs> is also probably the most kind of devastating of them all, which is Tracy's. Well, it's not yes. a death scene, you know, where, where the, the father, it's kind of revealed <sighs> that he was abusing her. I mean, that is such a heavy, mm. heavy moment in the midst of this kind of otherwise light Freddy movie. But well, that's what I love about the series is that it, in the midst of these really entertaining moments, you just, something is slipped in there, which is very... You know, it's 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 wordy discourse. It's it's relatable to some people, you know, and it's it's commenting upon something I think which is really important in cinema, which is you know the what what kids go through, what teens go through, and I think yes. that's one of the reasons why this series probably has has lasted as long as it has because it touches mm-hmm. upon issues which are very relevant and very real, but sometimes those kind of discussions. You know, th- those things aren't really kind of mine for a discussion. It's one of the things which I really wanted to to do with this book was to kind of emphasize and pinpoint these these elements and robert england was, was fantastic for that because that's the kind of that's what he was thinking when these scenes were were being filmed you know this is this is something that the kid who rents this movie on a friday night and what you know enjoys it with a, with a pizza and a, a coke watching it with his parents in the dark you know he's not going to be thinking about these really dark teams or these really important teams but as he gets older he'll realize that there was something there beyond just a kind of a harmless thrill you know and he, he cut right to the bone of what my book was about. And that I think Freddy's dead has some of those elements. That's one of the reasons that I love it is that such an entertaining movie, but it has a lot of sur- below the surface things going on. Yeah, and we talked later, we talked earlier about how um, dream child kind of hit you over the head with this, but this is way yeah. more subtle. Those themes to where they kind of yeah. just creep mm-hmm. up on you and kind of eat at you a little bit, as opposed to just hitting you over the head with a ton of bricks. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I think that's partly due to the, the aesthetic of the film. I think with part five, it, it, it the look of it alone says we're trying to do something dark and important yeah. here. You know what I mean? Right. Try, it's, we're, we're trying to be heavy. Whereas Freddy's Dead, like like we're, we're mentioning with all these pop cultural kind of touchstones, references, it does it in, it, it eases you into everything, you know, so well because you're enjoying it on that just easy trill, easy fun ride kind of level. And then you go, wow, Jesus, that, that, that's some deep stuff they're talking about there in a very subtle way. Definitely. All right. Let's move on to uh, number three. And uh, Mondo, you're going to be happy with this one because it is New Nightmare. Yeah. Mm. Uh, New Nightmare, again, it's uh, the second Freddy movie I ever saw in the theater when I was 11 in 1994. And um, it's one at the time I enjoyed it. But as I got older and watched it more and more, I find it to be one of the most terrifying entries in the series. Because they walked, they moved outside of this character who lives on the screen and pulled him into the real world. Like to this day, when Robert England is just painting and you see the evil version of Freddy that he's Mm -hmm. painting, that fucking chilled me to the bone. Um, Because again, it's not Freddy, right? It's a demon who just loves Freddy and thinks I'm just going to become this guy. And they take away, like, 
what is there? There's still some the, the, the slapstick in there, the jokes in there are not jokes. It's just him mm-hmm. being an evil, sadistic motherfucker. Like when he kills the babysitter and goes, hey, Jacob, other played skin the cat. Like, yeah, it's haha. Oh, wait, <laughs> he's really skinning this person on the ceiling. Or when at the end, when they're in his realm and it's the Hansel and Gretel realm and he's like, pick a pet for the Rugrat bitch. Or just when he keeps calling her Nancy, for some reason, mm-hmm. that's really going to bother me because it's not Nancy, but he's like, no, you're my Nancy. And mm-hmm. um, it, it's, but it also, um, I think it touches on some interesting things, how like uh, the earthquakes that only she's feeling and no one wants to believe her. And that's really scary too, right? You're experiencing these really dark things and no one around you is believing what you're experiencing. And uh, the, the phone calls, the prank phone calls and the, um, you know, her husband dying, all of that really ties in. And the fact that it really plays with that metaverse, that meta universe or that meta world that nobody was really doing at the time. I mean, that was pre, mm-hmm. that was pre scream. And I think that was kind of the impetus for scream that Wes Craven made this film. And it really didn't get the, I, I know I've read stuff about it and it really didn't get the love, get the love that it deserved when it came out. Um, people didn't respect it as a nightmare film because they're trying to do something different. And I also respect the fuck out of Wes Craven for saying, we're going left field with this thing because I have a great idea. And I do think nowadays people respect that movie way more than they did when it came out. Um, but to this day, I'll say that is like just a terrifying nightmare movie. The coolest glove in the series, that mm-hmm. creepy ass fucking bone glove. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I'm a big fan. I fucking love New Nightmare. Like, in my opinion, that's almost a perfect movie. Like, I can't knock that movie at all. It's number three, and I'm calling it a perfect movie. That's how much I love <laughs> That's how much I love the other ones that are going to be at the top of the list. Well, I, I actually <laughs> ranked it second from last, but purely because we, we have... Damn it! <laughs> no, I absolutely love it. But just for the sake of putting it in, in order. Yeah. You know, it, I just loved the other ones more. But I, I totally agree. It's way ahead of its time in terms of being this kind of intertextual kind of, you know, mainstream movie. No other film at that stage was, was doing that kind of self-reflexivity and looking at storytelling and kind of, you know, putting the camera back in on itself. And I think as time goes on, people are appreciating it more because other films have done it since and kind of, you know, seen that this was in some way an originator, at least an originator in the 90s. Context. Oh, for sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, some yeah. people did it. Dennis Hopper did it brilliantly in the 70s with the last movie. Um, but I, I think from a filmmaking perspective, it's absolutely, it's, it's a mini masterpiece almost. Um, I love that it's it's a love letter to fans of the series as well because you know yes. even in, in the funeral scene you have the actors from other movies John Saxon amazing John, uh, yeah yeah I was gonna say John Saxon awesome. needs some credit for this movie because yeah. there are some really cool John Saxon yeah. scenes in this. and let's give um, all praise due to Heather Lanningcamp for just, yes you know, finally getting a move getting to really show some of her acting and her charisma. Um, and just really taking this movie and running with it and for, and for kind of going back into that well. Um, I mean, I don't think it's a spoiler knowing where we're at with the rankings here that all the top three have Heather Langenkamp in them. There's a reason for that. Yeah. Well, they have, they have two things. They have Heather Langenkamp and they have um, Wes Craven involved in them. Yes. Right. Well, and Robert, Robert England's an obvious one. Come oh, on. yes, yeah. obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I will knock this movie for a couple things. Um, Jason, can you, dis- can you disconnect no. yourself? I'm okay. sorry, I can't. <laughs> I don't love the new Freddy look. Sure. I say new as an NU. Um, oh no, don't say that. Kind of like that felt <laughs> Fendor, uh, um coat. Like I think it's it might just be that something about the '90s aesthetic of exactly what th- that time. 
Um, I, I, w- I will agree. It is not my favorite look for Freddy. But, no, I, uh, but my, but, my, off, my office is filled with action figures of various kinds. And I haven't picked up a new Nightmare one because it's just not my favorite to look at. The, I the love con- the movie, so I, I, I don't love the Freddy. All right, I'm, I'm just going to jump in because I love the aesthetic of Freddy in this. because okay. it's, and I'll tell you why. Because it's different. Um, it it was meant to, it wasn't meant to be the Freddy you and I knew it was a demon who wanted to be Freddy and decided that he wanted to look. So it should have been different. And, um, and granted, like maybe, maybe I'm not, I'm not knocking your, your argument that you didn't love the aesthetic of it, but I think it had to be different from the, the, like he had to have something that wasn't, uh, Mm -hmm. from the old movies. No, I, I totally agree. And I, I totally Mm -hmm. want them to do something different. I don't want the classic Freddy, but something about this one just didn't, it seemed too new. Like everything yeah. seemed too clean on it. Um, again, it, it's purely my preference. And actually, the threat of Freddy or the demon in this movie, I think, is much scarier than when he's actually on screen to me. Um, his presence, the idea, the concept. I the, want the, more. The of idea that. that he's actually in the real world. Yeah, that uh, to me is scarier than when he's actually showing up and like physically running after people. But again, that's me. I also want to say I don't love the child actor and some of his stuff in this. Me a little bit the wrong way again, not not the actor's fault, but you know what he's given. And the score on this is just a little too bombastic, bombastic for my tastes. It's a big score, yeah. Um, Uh, Oh, Wayne, if you want to just take my spot and Daz in the crypt, we can just do this (laughs) again. I'm not saying other people can't like it, but. That's why yeah. I didn't read that as high. No, I, I respect that. I, I don't think you. I, I think you're making all good points. I, I respect right. that. I'm just. I, I. I really don't respect. It. I'm just saying that. <laughs> okay, fair enough. So I, I, while, while we're on this one, I'll just. I'll just go ahead and pull out a couple of moments that I really like that are kind of mm-hmm. subtle moments because I, I think there are some really cool subtle things happening in this. Uh, one of them is John Saxon talking, yeah. uh, where he starts calling her Nancy. Yes, like that. That's a. That's a really yeah. cool moment. I love that. And suddenly her clothes are the same as the first movie. Yeah. Yes. I like the uh, the scene where uh, even and you're right. The Miko Hughes, the uh, the kid, uh, maybe not the best actor, but oh, that's fine. Wayne, did you interview Miko at all? I didn't. No, I didn't. I didn't even approach him to be honest. Um, I, I I kept my. I, I got. I reached a point where I was kind of happy with all the people awesome. I, I'd got, sure. and I didn't. I didn't go for many of the actors. You know, once I got Robert England, I was kind of. <laughs> I'm yeah. I'm just wondering because I followed him on social media for a little bit, then I had to unfollow him. I'll just put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. yeah. But that, the the scene where he is up on the uh, the jungle gym. That part's great. Yeah, yeah, as a parent, just seeing the kid being up in that like moment of danger is is a really unnerving moment. You know. Uh, I also really like uh, when um, Heather Langenkamp is on the talk show and Freddie mm-hmm. comes out and everyone's cheering for him oh. and, you know, he's this fun character and she's like, no, this dude's a scary dude. Like, I don't like that he's fun anymore. Well, when yeah. he's that, that's that actually, that actual image has become pretty iconic and mm-hmm. people do the lot where he's waving at the crowd. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have all the signs like, give me five Freddie and stuff like that. And that's also when she says like, I've dreamed about Freddie and he goes me he goes she goes no not like you he's more evil yeah. and um yeah goosebumps yeah, what goosebumps I, what <laughs> i would have wanted stuff. in this movie what would bumped it up if there was a scene a death scene for robert england i'm pretty from, lo- oh freddie had actually killed robert england if, if freddie had killed robert england in the movie no no that, i would love that that, that would have been meta as fuck i'm really glad you're not a director <laughs> <laughs> All right. I love that scene. I think that's the best scene for me in the movie because, again, it's a, it's acknowledging 
where Freddie mm-hmm. went to. You know what I mean? He yeah. reached a point where he was, where Robert England could be a talk show guest. Yeah. Where Fred, yeah. You, know, you had these baying audiences for Freddie, you know what I mean? And it's just, it's a great acknowledgement of the impact of the series, both on the the cast and the filmmakers, but also on, you know, culture at large. Well, and we didn't mention which talk talk show was it that he was on where he hid in something and jumped out and scared some, he was on Ellen, right? Um, It wasn't like Joan Rivers or something like that, was it? It was, I don't, I I just remember like he was hidden in something and he jumped out and scared some actor who was being interviewed. And it it made me think of New Nightmare as soon as I saw it. And and real fast, we didn't touch on it, but in my opinion, the coolest theme of this whole movie is the fact that this evil is contained because the demon or whatever the evil is just upset that people forgot about him mm-hmm. he just wants more stories written about him because yeah. he wants to sit back and go ha yeah write stories about me and i i love like i love that fact of it and i love the fact like when they're reading that when they find when when she finds a script in the demon world and she reads what's happening and the very end of the movie is her reading the script like i i really do love that um again ties into one of my other favorite movies in the world which is in the mouth of madness which i think oh, also yeah. yeah very similar i think oh yeah all right we can move on sorry i love that movie and all you guys are wrong <laughs> <laughs> I, I love it i love it it's, it's it's definitely up at the top for me too yeah that's no, a great movie thank you like i said before even when the ones i ranked at the bottom i still love them that's okay yeah. yes they're all, our, was, they're all our children. They're all our children. It was the last time I really loved a Freddy movie. I think because I, I never, I never truly loved Freddy vs. Jason, oh. and I, I hated the remake. But I think you know, New Nightmare is kind of. I always consider the, the the franchise to be one to six, but New Nightmare is just this lovely, lovely addition. Oh, no, I agree, and I'm okay with you saying that because I think that you're right. It doesn't really fit in with the rest of the films. It's like uh, it's like an, an appendix. <laughs> It's like a commentary on the other yeah. films. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's a love letter to the fans. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely. All right. It was, uh, it was John Krasinski getting scared on Ellen by Freddy. That's what uh, it was. That uh, was the talk show scene. <laughs> I had to look it up. All right. Number two is, of course, Nightmare on Elm Street's The Dream Warriors. And for this one, we're going to Wayne, who had it as his number one. Yeah, I, this was a tough one. You know, what's what's my favorite Freddy movie? You know, it, you, you kind of have to acknowledge part one as being the innovator, of being the originator, mm-hmm. and you know all the the genius things that Wes Craven did with that, and all the ideas which informs all of these movies that we love start in part one. But for me, part three, oh God, I think it's just everything comes together. The script, the way it just it develops everything from part one, the way it goes into Amanda Kruger and the kind of the mythology. Um, I think the cast is, is fantastic. All of the kids are likable and they all have their own great kind of backstories and the way it kind of, the way Freddie plays to that. You know what I mean? We, we talked about Taryn earlier on and the way like her death scene is, it's brilliant, brilliantly done. But when you think about it, it's so horrible. I mean, yeah. he's playing upon this, yeah. this, poor young woman who was a, an addict and he's mm-hmm. you know it's just a it's a horrible scene but that's that's the great thing about it it's a horror movie and it touches all those horror movie buttons but it's so well made chuck russell i loved talking to chuck he he reminded me of robert england in that he approached the storytelling from that thematic and kind of intellectual way as well you know um which not all writers or, or directors do and so he was a great interview and Roy Wagner, who I love, he's, he's a good friend. Um, he, I think his cinematography on this is probably the, the best cinematography of the whole series. It's so beautiful. It's gothic, but not 
not over-egged like the way part five is. You know what I mean? It has mm-hmm. that kind of um, really stylish look to it, but it, it balances it beautifully with what I always call this kind of sunny suburban Elm Street thing that's going on. It's one of the things that I loved about the whole franchise is that it's set in this kind of middle America, middle class, kind of very nice, you know, uh, sunny suburban world. But then you have this dark underbelly and that that institution for the kids represents that in many ways. So I love that Roy got that beautiful juxtaposition of the daytime scenes, which are beautifully shot, very bright. And then he had this dark, gothic kind of clinical interior world. Um, I think Freddy is perfect here. This is Freddy at his best. Uh, I agree with you on that. Yeah, he is. He is witty. He is funny on occasion, but he's still damn terrifying. And I think it probably has the best kill in the entire series. And can you guys guess what I'm going to say? Uh, 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 the uh, the puppet, the marionette. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's what I was me. thinking too. Yeah, that terrified me. And yeah. I, I didn't. I've never scared easy at movies, even since I was a kid. But that haunted me. Oh, the you know? the body horror of that scene with the the tendons just. Oh, well, it's still, it, it they do a beautiful cringe. thing there by showing. They do a beautiful thing by going back and forth between the dream world and the real world in that mm-hmm. and showing him walking and no one's taking him seriously because absolutely. of how he's walking. Right. Yeah. And absolutely mad props to part three because Dokken. Yeah. I love Dokken. Yeah. I, I have that EP on vinyl. I fucking love that song. Three <laughs> warriors into the night. I just love it. And um, Angelo Badalamenti's score is fantastic yes. as well. He doesn't, it's kind of different from the other scores in that he, he doesn't overplay the, the the team that we 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 know as the the Elm Street team but it's just um it comes together beautifully for me just again from a film history point of view in in documenting its making it was you know it was quite troubled you know so you had some old school professionals like Roy and Dennis McGuire working on it and then you had like Mick Strawn who was kind of non-union indie guys you know so a bit of tension there um Chuck Russell I don't think got on very well with a lot of the cast, but he was one of my favorite interviewees. He was just a very, very rich, complex kind of interview, but he gave me so much material to work with. And I was so grateful. Um, I'm trying to think who else I worked with on for that chapter, worked with a few people, but it just, and it was, again, my introduction to Elm Street. It was around the time where I was just discovering it. I rented it nonstop. I think more than any other movie. Maybe Rocky Four. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen the Rockies Four director's cut yet? I'm afraid to because I love it so much. <laughs> okay, I'm just one, I haven't seen it. I was wondering. Oh man, um, but yeah, I think Tree is just—it's everything that's great about Freddy Krueger, about Elm Street, and about the whole world of, of that it builds. I think it's just. Yeah, it's it's definitive for me yeah. as a, as a, an Elm Street movie. So well, two. Two pieces in that that always stood out to me was um, when uh, Freddy is in, uh, depending on how you look at it, either phallus form or worm form, or <laughs> the Freddy snake, yeah. when he sees, uh, they do such a good job with the practical effects, when he sees Nancy for the first time, he goes, you, and the way the face changes, yeah. fucking love it. And then when he kills the, the death of Nancy, I thought it was yeah. just, because I did not, the first time I watched that movie, I did not expect Nancy to die. Like it kind of hit me really hard that Nancy died. And um, that was two things. I thought that was pretty brave in that movie. I think, I don't think any of us, the first time we watched it probably thought Nancy was going to die in that film. No, hundred percent. 
Um, I'm going to hop in real quick. So, yeah, I agree with all the positive we said. Um, and I had to, but to me, I, 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 to oh, do God. a ranking, you have to take in, you know, you have to think of what are the ne- what could be the negatives. Of, all right, of, Jason, what number to drink is that? Oh, God. <laughs> and, uh, so to, to justify ranking one above or below another one. So, uh, I, I don't want your justification. I want to know what number, and oh, God, it's not a number. What? <laughs> what number did you rank this at? Oh, this is my number two. Oh, okay. So I, I thought had to, I had to find a way to rank what obviously what what the next one is going to be, which is obviously the original. I had to find a reason to make the original above this one. Okay. So just to, just to be fair to both sides, um, is that to to me the whole of this one is not greater than some some of its parts. So the kind of the opposite of um, Freddy's Dead. There's just there's amazing scenes, but to me, it doesn't congeal as well as the original does. Um, and it's the the narrative is a little messy because it keeps jumping from Nancy to Kristen to Doctor Gordon, and it's it could be a little narratively jarring. Like it ends with Doctor Gordon in his bed, which I always thought was a kind of weird shot to end on, like a grown man in a nightmare movie, um, sleeping. Um, and also, I feel like the, they shortchanged some of the Dream Warriors, like the the Wizard Master. Uh, I wanted more of that. Can I tell Karen. you? Can I tell you my idea for the Wizard Master death? That I think would have been better. Yeah. So he goes on his wheelchair and he meets Freddy, and Freddy hands him a D twenty, <laughs> and he rolls it, and he gets like a six, and Freddy goes, "Sorry, <laughs> kid, it takes ten to live," and he kills him. Yeah. See, that would have been <laughs> a little cooler rather than oh, I'm just gonna. I'm gonna stab you. No, I I still like that though. I, sorry, kid. I don't believe in fairy tales. That's a great line. Come on. Yeah, yeah. I, I just kind the of the back like in the saddle that. again line. Great yeah. line. Come on. I just would like to see the Dream Warriors used though. I love that it goes into these fantasy almost superhero elements. But I would like to them to go a little bit further, but probably with the budget they couldn't. Sure. Um, they're just there's just so many likable characters in this yeah. one though. You know, like you really want these kids to make it through and. It, you know, and so that makes all the death scenes a little more impactful. Like, I hated to see Taryn die. Same I hated, here. You know, no. you know, I obviously hated to see Nancy die. But, you know, it, I, just, I feel like the characters really kind of elevate this one a little bit because there's so many good ones and, and you really want them to succeed. Um, one thing I forgot to mention um, about this is that each of us had a different number two. <laughs> So um, on this one, Wayne had uh, the original number one, uh, number two. Jody had uh, number three as number two. I had Freddy's night, uh, sorry, Freddy's dead as number two, and Mondo had New Nightmares number two. So each of us had a different number two. And you want to know what for me, New Nightmare, and uh, so I literally, when you asked the rankings, I just said was on top of my head. I'm like that has to be the rankings because it's what I came up with first. But like literally, two and three are a tie for me. Or sorry, New Nightmare and three are a tie for me because yeah. I love both movies so much. I, I had a lot of trouble with two and three. Like if I if I really think about which one I like more, it's hard for me to decide. Yeah, because it was the same. It's New Nightmare and and part three. I only knew that there was one movie which was kind of. Below everything else, which was five. I mean, everything else kind of justices. No, I. I, yeah. I it's definitely telling that we all that was the one unanimous one that we're all like, yeah, five is <laughs> probably the worst. Um. All right, so let's move on to uh, number one, which of course is the original Nightmare on Elm Street, and this one again, Wayne chose uh, Dream Warriors as his number one, and the rest of us chose the original Nightmare on Elm Street. And for this one, uh, Jody, you're up. Yeah. No, this one is just it. it 
so I, I was a late arrival to horror. You know, everyone else here is talking about, you know, when they were seven or whatever. I think I was probably 17 or so before I really went back and caught up on all the 80s horror movies that I hadn't watched. Cause I, I mean, I, you already had three kids by then, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> see, when, when, when I was a kid, you know, I was scared of movies. You know, I, I had heard of Freddy, I'd heard of Jason, I'd, I'd heard of all these things because they were such pop culture icons, you know, all the way back when I was six years old, I heard about all these characters. But I was afraid to approach them. You know, I grew up with Goosebumps and then I moved into Stephen King. And then by the time I was like 16, 17, somewhere in that realm, I was like, I want to go back and watch these classic slashers. And the first one I went to was a nightmare on Elm street. And so my first exposure to Freddie was as a 17 year old. So kind of around the age of the kids in this movie. And I just absolutely loved it. The, the creativity of the entire idea, you know, cause I watched the big three, I watched Halloween, I watched Friday the 13th and I watched nightmare on Elm street. And I love Halloween. I love, um, Jason. I have Jason's all over my office. You know, I, I'm, I'm a huge Friday 13th fan. But there was something about this one that set it apart. Um, and it was, it was the whole concept. It was the, that Freddy could attack you in what should be a safe place. You're in your bed. You're sleeping. You know, you doze off in class. You are always vulnerable to Freddy Krueger. Um, if Freddy wanted to get you, there was no safe place. And watching the adults not believe the kids... Watching the adults not even not even just not believe the kids, they caused it. They are paying for the sins of their parents, mm-hmm. and so it just made it all so much scarier that the adults failed you, and now you're reaping the repercussions of their mistakes. Uh, and then there's so many great performances in here: early Johnny Depp, Heather Langenkamp, of course. That first major death scene uh, where she's dragged along the walls and the ceiling is just a shocking scene when you haven't seen anything like that before. I recently watched this movie with my 11-year-old daughter uh, who had never seen any nightmare movies. And uh, we watched, we were, were horror movie buddies. She watched all the Friday 13ths with me and stuff like that. What is what number for child protective services in Tennessee? Is that <laughs> <laughs> But it's it's still it still has an impact. You know, this movie was made in 1984, and in 2021, this movie still can get under your skin. Uh, it can still freak you out, and I I just I, I just love it. I love this movie. I I will watch this movie and enjoy it for the rest of my life, just the same way I did that first time I watched it when I was 17 years old. Yeah, That's I watched it with my 15 um, year old over the summer, and yeah. It still it still hit with him. it still hits. Um, I was good. Sorry, I was just going to say I showed it a few times to different students, you know, and I've been teaching and lecturing. And the one thing I found is that it is still very impactful, and it, it does still have the power to scare and thrill and upset. Because I remember it was one particular time I was showing it to a class, and there was a couple of girls down the front, you know, and these were maybe sixteen, seventeen year olds, and I noticed them; they were kind of huddling together, and I thought, oh. They're having a great time, you know, trills and chills and all this kind of thing. But then the teacher, the other teacher came up to me and said, they're upset. I was like, oh, my God, really? They were actually terrified. It was the scene that you just mentioned where, um, where Tina's getting dragged across the, scene, mm-hmm. the ceiling. And I thought, Jesus, that, that's, 
I thought it was great that it still had the power to have that impact on on a viewer, you know. And I felt sorry for them that I. I <laughs> but I thought it was so great because you know, I, I, every time I show it to a new group of of, of kids or, or students, I think, are they going to think this is corny? Are they going to look at it and go, "Oh my god, look at the effects!" It's so because you know they're so used to superhero movies and so used to you know things which are shocking and you know whatever that they'd be kind of desensitized to it. But I've been delighted that every time I show it, that kids do still find it a scary experience, and that's. It's the power of Wes Craven, the power of his filmmaking, and the power power of it as a concept that it, it kind mm -hmm. of can haunt us so much, and it is an absolute masterpiece. Uh, I, have, I have a comment and a question. Uh, a comment being here in the states, if you showed that to sixteen and seventeen year olds in oh, school, uh, they 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 crucify you um, because we're so we, we shelter our kids way too much. Um, yeah. But uh, two is, did they give you any feed? Did the the, the kids that you've shown this to? Um, when I say kids, you say young adults, right? Like they're they're on their way. Um, did they give you any feedback on the movies? Not a whole lot. Like I, I find sometimes, you know, when I, when I come in and do maybe some guest lecturing and stuff, I, it's with first years in particular, they tend to be quieter. You know what I mean? Because yeah. it's their first year in college and they're often their first time watching these movies, which, you know, we're so used to and we consider classics and part of the great film history canon. So, you know, you're expecting them to come, oh, that was brilliant, that was a masterpiece, that was this and that and the other. But often they they tend to be quite shy. They don't really know what to say other than, in the case of this movie, God, that was terrifying, you know? <laughs> and I think that's brilliant, you know? And yeah. I try and then go into the the teams and the context and kind of give them a lecture on what it, what it's, it's all about and, and the meaning behind it. And they they get it, you know what I mean? Um, and I think that's that's brilliant. But usually their, their first response is the perfect response, which is that they were scared. And I think that's that's yeah. testament to it being, to it holding up as just this, this great, great horror film. It is iconic. And as you guys mentioned earlier, it's 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 different from in in the in the context of the big tree, it's different. It's a standout. Because yeah. I think when you when you think of Halloween or Friday the thirteenth and you think of the series as a whole, some of them kind of mesh. You know what I mean? They they kind of visually and aesthetically speaking, you know, it's it's harder to pick out individual films, I think, especially if you're not you know as into it as we are but i think when you look at the nightmare on elm street series each film has its own tone its own aesthetic its own look and that's down to bringing in fantastic cinematographers editors you know to to give each film its own look and directors as well you know and i think that's why um why the series is so rich for for you know horror fans and for film fans in general because there's so much to dig into you know from a, a film kind of scholarship point of view or whatever it is and that's why i always love teaching these Whenever, whenever I'm doing film history classes and we, we come to horror because I think there's so much rich material there in the Elm Street world from a, a thematic point of view, from a filmmaking point of view, special effects, whatever, whatever angle you want to come, come to it from. But the, the cool thing about it is the, the response is that they, they get scared and they enjoyed it. And that's, that's, always, that's yeah. the only thing you can hope when you're, when you're introducing students to a movie. That's, that's the best response you can hope for. That's perfect. That's awesome. And what, one, one reason I love this movie and uh, why I showed it to my daughter is, you know, uh, th those big three, you've got your three final girls and I love Laurie Strode. I love Alice, but they kind of become the final girl by accident, right? Like they're just mm -hmm. not the, they're, they're the last one to be killed. Like no one, no one's going after them until that point. But Nancy is a very proactive final girl. Dude, her, like, uh, her she booby decides, traps. Come I'm on. going to hunt this guy down and take him out. You know, by the time uh, she's she's at the end, she's researching, she's plotting, she's planning, and she goes in 
chasing after Freddy. Uh, you know, the other the other girls survive, yeah. but Nancy fights back. <laughs> and right. I just, and I love that about it. Well, and I think that's one of my favorite parts of this movie is the very is not the very very end, but the right before the very end where yeah, no no one's favorite part of the movie is the very very end. <laughs> <laughs> the way she the way she defeats Freddy is by turning her back on him, is by taking his power back, by mm-hmm. taking her own narrative back. Which super ties in, actually, to Freddy versus Jason. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Um, It's cool the way she rises but, to it and meets him on that level. It's, it's, she's going into combat. She's yeah. going to mm-hmm. take but, him on. Yeah, but by, by ignoring him. Like, in any other movie, you'd see her chopping his head off, you know, stabbing him or something like that. But no, yeah. here it's more of a philosophical um uh a moment of oh i'm actually not afraid of you anymore you can't hurt me because i choose not to be a victim well and we talked a lot we didn't talk about also her alcoholic mother yes who Mm -hmm. doesn't believe anything's happening even though she killed this help kill this guy you know (laughs) x amount of years ago and um when she tells is it tina's mom that's like you need to stop having those dreams or cut your yeah. fingernails. It's like, oh shit, yeah, I'll try to stop dreaming. That's cool. Um, yeah. yeah. And even like Rod Lane, right? Like, granted, he's the kind of an anti-hero in this, right? And no one believes the fact that he didn't kill Tina except for Nancy. Mm-hmm. And it's again, it goes back in that theme of parents not believing their kids when their kids are trying to tell them real-world things. And um, it's, uh, you know, I, I think that's less prominent today. Um, and I know you guys, Jason and, and Jody, I think you guys are good dads and I think you guys listen to your children, but back then, like the mentality was children are seen and not heard. Right. Yeah. And, and that's one of the, the great themes of the, of the, the series is that just medicate the kids kind of just yeah. ignore them, medicate them and they'll, they'll find their own way, which obviously they don't. And the kids are damaged. And it's, it's probably for me, the central theme of the whole series is that discord, that generational discord between the, those kids of the eighties and, these parents who were kind of, they come across almost like burnouts from the 60s or the 70s. You know what I mean? They're kind of, you know, they're, they're fractured. They're alcoholics or they're divorced or whatever. And there's a lot of stuff going on there, I think, under the surface. And um, Robert England's touched upon that quite a lot. Actually, that was one of the things he, he brought to it was the, the central idea that Wes Craven wanted to touch upon was the kind of the breakdown of the family unit. Mm-hmm. You know, because Wes Craven himself had experienced that. And then he himself went through divorce and stuff. So, you know, there's a lot of serious elements in, in these films and especially the first one. And I think that's, that was so rich and it, it had, it provided the fuel for me for the book and, you know, studying these films all over the years. And, but that's it. I think it's the breakdown of the family at the end of the day, which is really mm-hmm. at the heart of these films and how it affects kids. I mean, you pitch that to um, like number three, also done by Wes Craven, when it's these kids in an insane asylum, and none of them are really bad kids. They're not insane. But, you know, again, I think I brought it up before. Um, uh, the mom says, oh, I took away her credit cards. It's probably why she's having nightmares. It's, you know, like all those kids needed were some attention and some love and some understanding, and maybe they wouldn't be... Well, granted, they probably still would be because they had to sleep, <laughs> but um, <laughs> but maybe they'd be mentally better. But yeah, you're right. The breakdown of the family unit, the uh, and it kind of tells you, hey man, maybe you should listen to your kids every now and again and talk to them. Yeah, and in a way, it's kind of the breakdown of the American dream, isn't it? This yeah. idea of you you get the the house in the suburbs and live happily ever after with the two point five family unit, but it, did, it didn't work because yeah. the the parents took their revenge, they took the law into their own hands, and then you know, they're, they're, they're reaping what they sowed, you know, and, and then they're, they're this idealized family suburban thing 
this dream didn't work out for them. And what Robert said was, you know, it reflects a lot of kind of the post 60s milieu in American society where, you know, after Kennedy was shot, you know, that whole whole idea of the American dream didn't really didn't really work out, you know, because the American innocence was lost in that moment. Mm-hmm. And Wes really reflected a lot of that in, in A Nightmare on Elm Street. And I think that's 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 why the series is so, so rich, because there's a lot of ideas in there which are worthy of discussion. I think that's probably why also, you know, we're, what, 2021 now? Almost, shit, we're almost, what, 40 years after the, uh, 40, I can't do math. Um, for 40 years, almost 40 years after the original movie, right? 37 years. And it's still relevant today because those themes still exist. And uh, I think, you know, you can show that to a 15-year-old kid today and they're going to pick up those themes and they're going to gonna want to run with them and it's going to make them interested because, like, it, it you know, kind of sucks that yeah, in, well, I think we haven't gotten that much better. Yeah. It's one of the great <laughs> things about the horror genre in general, I think, is that it, it exposes younger audiences to important things about society, philosophical things, political things that they might not otherwise be exposed to. They're not going to sit and watch the news, but if they sit and watch a Freddy movie and take in some of these ideas, food for thought that, you know, might lead on to more serious, you know, discourse down the line on these, these things. So it, it's a great introduction to important things in life, I think. And that's why I love horror. Definitely. Love yeah. it. And again, we talked about how the wife is medicating herself through alcohol. The parents are, the parents are the ones who are asleep while the kids are mm-hmm. trying to, be awake to the reality around them while the like the American the parents trying to live the American dream are really just trying to numb out. Yeah. Um also I love the score in this. It is just mm-hmm. so good. Like there's the whole um sequence leading up to where Tina goes to sleep where the score is just kind of slowly winding down as if the score itself is kind of putting itself to sleep. Oh, where there's kind of a pulse, electronic pulse, just kind of low, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Kind of thing. Oh, it's brilliant. Yeah. yeah. Um, and also, it's the, the 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 effects they got on this budget are crazy. Yeah. yeah. Um, they did so much with so little, and they just by I think by virtue of the fact of having really strong concepts, of having a really strong uh, design um, for Freddy himself and all the gags that they do. If you have a really good, concise idea and you can figure out how to pull it off um, reasonably well, and you're already in this like dream logic thing. So even if something doesn't look perfect, you're like, oh, it's your brain is like, oh, well, it's a dream, so it doesn't have to look perfect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 One of one of the things that my my daughter liked the most, and it's one of the things I love about this series too, is in watching it, you never really know when the dreams have started. Mm-hmm. And so it's just that things are kind of off. Like you're watching and then something happens and you're like, wait a, wait a second. That doesn't seem quite real. Are we in a dream now? Is something about to happen? And that still works in 2021 for a kid watching this for the first time is having that moment of going, wait a second. <laughs> you know, uh, it, they, they, they do a great job of drawing you into it and making you not sure if you can even trust yourself while you're watching it. Yeah. One of my favorite moments of, of that is when, it's in the school and she goes out into the hallway and you, mm-hmm. you hear the subtle, the wind and the rustle mm-hmm. of leaves and you go, oh man, this is so surreal. And it just happened in a second. You know what I mean? It's not, like you say, mm-hmm. there's no dissolves. There's no kind of waves kind of bringing us into the dream sequence. She just, she walks out into the hallway. We hear what doesn't sound like should be in the middle of a hallway in a high school. Mm-hmm. So we're in this kind of weird extra diegetic world that's just so subtle. And it reminds me like of, 
you know, the films of Louis Bunuel or something like that, where you're watching this kind of straight narrative and all of a sudden you're in a surreal dream sequence, but you got no inclination that you were going there. You know, I think that's one of the, one of the great things about that, that first film, <clears throat> excuse me, is that everybody who worked on it, you know, was just at the top of their game. Jack Haken, who I talked to as well, brilliant, brilliant cinematographer. And again, he came, he came to it from a story point of view. He said to me, he's a story guy. So all those teams and the elements that Wes Craven was bringing to it were discussions he had, you know, in terms of coming up with the mise-en-scene and with the photography. And I think one of the greatest sequences in, in the whole series is near the start of the movie where, you know, we, we see the kids doing the nursery rhyme and it's heavily diffused, very soft focus, you know, and then it moves, the camera moves to the side and we see the kids arriving to school. And mm-hmm. in, that, in that transition, in that camera move, it goes from hazy diffusion to really hard focus, bright light, hard light. And it was just a genius move. And that's the kind of stuff that if you have the right cinematographer there that you can achieve, no, no big budget will, will make that any better. And I think you could see, see the, that element with the remake. All the money that was thrown at the remake mm-hmm. could never replicate the genius of the first film with a slow budget. And I think one of the prime examples of that was the scene where Freddie comes out of the wall above Nancy. Mm-hmm. You know, in the first film, which was achieved with, you know, some soft bit of vinyl, whatever, and a light above. But in the remake, it was, you know, an expensive digital effects shot. And it looked like a cartoon sequence. It was, it was right. horrible. You yeah, know, that, that, that scene right there, when I was in college, I was watching the original Nightmare with one of my roommates. And he'd never seen it before. And he's not a horror movie guy. And we got to that scene where Freddy just leans out of the wall and the wall stretches. And he said... Nope, I'm out. And that was the last <laughs> one that movie. That was the moment that he was like, nope, this is too much for me. And uh, it, still, it still works. It still mm-hmm. works. Absolutely. Love it's just, just great filmmaking. It doesn't matter you know, whether low budget or not. If you have great collaborators, that's a prime example. You yeah. know? And at the end of the day, it was an indie movie. It was a, a low budget indie movie that yeah. just became a phenomenon. You know? And it's, it's down to great ideas, great concepts, and great filmmakers. You know, so here we are talking about it 40 years later. Definitely. Okay. Well, well I, I think... I, well, hold on a second. Can I end with a very important question? So we all know that Dream Warriors was the best mainstream Night Rental Machine song of all time. But what was better? The Fat Boys, Are You Ready for Freddy, or DJ Jazzy Jeff and Will Smith's Nightmare on My Street? Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> that's an impossible choice that's a Sophie's choice <laughs> I'm going to go with the Fat Boys just because yeah, I, I have to go with Fat Boys too but have you ever seen the video for Nightmare on My Street yes yeah. because they had no rights to Freddy for that Yeah. and he went up with this weird like guy with a flat top I don't know I don't know what's like going on a there DJ Jazzy Jeff and uh, the Fresh Prince <laughs> just uh, they, but they, they did do a good job of stealing that score and uh, making a rap beat out of it, but yeah, yeah they had no rights to it at all. <laughs> it was bootleg. <laughs> all right. Well, I was going with fat boys too. I figured you guys, would, everyone else would go Will Smith, but yeah, fat boys. <laughs> <laughs> that was a very important question. Our fans will want to know. So. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, Wayne, thank you so much for coming on. This was a blast, dude. Thank uh, you. Absolutely. Man. This was so cool. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. Where can people uh, follow you and uh, get updates? Um, Wayne Byrne, author, Instagram, um, the Chillo book on Twitter. And that's pretty much it. Um, you can 
get the book. You can uh, go to McFarland Books for uh, several of my books. Um, Tom DeCillo was Columbia University Press. And Equinox Publishing for my upcoming music one. But other than that, yeah, I'm, I'm on Instagram. I tend to not, I'm not a prolific social media person, so uh, you might just find pictures of me in my pajamas watching horror movies. <laughs> Same, Same here. My Instagram feed too. Same That's here. exactly what my Instagram is. We leave all that work to Jason, who does all, all kinds of social media <laughs> stuff. So, hey, As long as you like our stuff, I'm happy with it. I think last year I posted 52 times. And I was like, that's once a week. That's way too much. <laughs> yeah, I, I find it's weird for for being as, as a writer, you know, especially with Instagram, because you know musicians look cool on stage, directors look cool on set, but a writer sitting, you know, in their PJs, <laughs> doing a laptop, you know, my content is limited. Put it like that. <laughs> Love it. Thank you so much. All, All right, right. thanks for having. Well, that wraps up up another episode. We really appreciate it if you would give us a rating or review on iTunes. And with that, we thank you for listening to Dads from the Crypts. <laughs> Follow Dads from the Crypt on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or I will follow you to the grave. <laughs> no, seriously, you really should watch, but be careful what you ask for. You may get it. <laughs> Ha 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 